Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You are listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast brought to you by Birmingham Live. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Claret and Blue podcast. Um, we keep these um, keep these glorious guests rolling, don't we? The latest is uh, Mr. John Gregory. How are you, John? I'm very well indeed, Matt. Thank you. Good to see you. I don't think I've actually given you the big the big build up there because I normally introduce people as former favourite legends, and we know all that, don't we? That, that's taken well, us red, yeah. isn't it? There's been a few. There's been a few legends um, at Aston Villa over the years. Uh, I saw Andy Gray on your program a couple of weeks back, and um, he certainly was uh, was a man that deserved the title of legend. Um, I had the uh, I had the luck of playing with him only for a short period, only for a couple of years. But um, he just won the Player of the Year, I think, the Young Player of the Year and the PFA's Player of the Year in 1977 and uh, when I signed for Villa so um, yeah he is absolutely a legend well that's a, that's a perfect segue John because we're going to kick off by talking talking about your career so am I right in thinking that, that, that your old man was, was a footballer before you yeah he was um, my dad played for West Ham back in the 50s early 50s and um, obviously I was just brought up with watching football I can remember watching the 1960 FA Cup final um, Wolves versus Blackburn, um, 1960. And I think that was the first time that I really got the bug. I was six years old. And my dad obviously used to take me to matches. As a six or seven-year-old, I would go with my dad every 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 match. Um, and uh, usually kicking a ball around somewhere or other. Um, so I was brought up with football and um, I always carried a football. I took a football to bed and it was at the end of my bed. And I, I remember waking up in the night, sort of just looking down at the bottom of the bed, making sure that the football was still there. So um, my whole life revolved around it. But yeah, I, I kind of saw dad play and um, I saw him then go into management, only sort of on a um, sort of lower football, uh, United Counties League. He was involved with a team called St. Neats up in Cambridgeshire. And he was the gaffer there for about 12, 13 years. And uh, funnily enough, we played Warsaw in the, in the FA Cup in 1966. Um, we lost 2-0 at Warsaw. And um, <clears throat> that was the first time that St. Neers had got to the FA Cup first round proper. And, and, and actually, since 1966, they never, ever um, appeared in the, uh, in the first round proper ever again. So um, dad, dad's um, ha- had, a, had a good... Good legacy at, uh, at at sort of non-league football level, um, but yeah, I just I was brought up in it, and obviously went to school, and I just lived and breathed football the whole time. I was just uh, got out of lessons. I used to get out of lessons so I could go and pump pump up the footballs ready for the matches on Saturday morning at school and that. But uh, yeah, so I, I kind of followed my dad, and obviously he was a a bit of an inspiration to me. I wanted to try and emulate him, and. Um, be as good as he was. So was it kind of you who kind of fell in love with being around football and that scene and wanting to be like your dad rather than your dad kind of being a pushy father who forced you into football or a bit of both? Or? Oh, 
Listen, listen, don't get me wrong. He bloody pushed me. Uh, <laughs> he was my biggest enemy. Uh, on, on, a, on a Saturday morning, God, I hated it being there. I hated it being there. He'd, he'd, he'd come to the school match, you know, Saturday morning, and uh, all the dads and mums and that used to stand along the touchline. And I used to look across to see if he'd turned up, you know. And um, when I saw him stood there on the side of the pitch, I used to hate it because I just knew that I'd, it'd be berating me for 80 minutes or however long the games used to last in those days. And uh, so I hated him being there. He'd shout at me. Whatever I did was always the wrong thing. Um, and he really gave me a really hard time. I could never, never seem to please him. So much so, Matt, that um, one week he wasn't there and we lost 4-0. We lost 4-0 to a team called Ramsey. And they, they really uh, beat us up that day. They beat us 4-0. And uh, I went home and I saw my dad in the afternoon. He said, oh, how did you get on this morning? And I, I, didn't, have, I didn't have the heart to tell him that I'd lost 4-0 because I just knew that he would really sort of humiliate me and, and uh, chastise me. And uh, So I told him that we won 1-0 and he said, oh, that's good. He said, who scored? I said, I did. I scored a penalty and we won 1-0. So he said, oh, OK, good. Um, and then, of course, he went down the pub on Sunday and uh, obviously saw all the other dads in the pub who, who all told him that, um, you know, my dad's walked in and gone, oh, boys did well yesterday. And he said, what do you mean they've done well? They got battered. He said, are you joking? And of course, my dad said that we'd won 1-0 and that my boy had scored the winner. And they said, he's bloody, he's winding you up. They lost 4-0. They were bloody useless, you know. So, and he'd come home and the abuse that I got then, you know, was... Uh, was unbelievable. So uh, I never lied to him again about the result, I have to say. But no, it, it was hard work. It was really hard work with Dad. He, he really made it really difficult for me as a kid. And I used to hate seeing him there. Sort of, and when he wasn't there, Matt, I just was totally relaxed and enjoyed the game and, and, you know, usually did okay. But when Dad was there, it was, it was awful. So um, uh, I kind of got used to it as I got older, obviously, as I grew up and started playing professionally. Uh, he could shout as much as he wanted to up in the stand, and I wouldn't hear him. You know, there was a lot of other people there. So, no, he, he was my—he was my biggest critic. My, really was. It really did, did give me a hard time as a kid. Listen, without without wishing to um, to kind of I don't know excuse your dad, it did the trick to a point because you got into professional yeah. football. You made your name at Northampton. So, without me trying to rattle too through that too quickly, what was your first experience like at Northampton, and how did the Villa thing first come about? Well, North, Northampton, I, I um, obviously went as an apprentice, uh, apprentice footballer. They used to have apprenticeships in those days. You know, like a two, two or three year apprenticeship. I was uh, fifteen years old, and I signed for them. And um, I was pretty desperate by then. I think a few clubs and uh, had come to look at me and didn't fancy me you know um some you know big clubs like premier league clubs back in the day that had a look and didn't fancy me at all and uh, i ended up out of desperation uh, i got the chance to go for a trial at northampton and they wanted to take me they wanted to sign me they signed me as an apprentice and um i obviously worked and cleaned the boots and and had a really good education i have to say i i um it held me in good stead years later because, um, you know, as kids, we had to clean the boots, we had to clean the baths, we had to run up the shop and get sandwiches or food or pump the balls up, 
help the groundsman on the pitch. Um, we, we literally worked a 40 hour week, you know, um, when the players all went home at lunchtime, you know, that's when our real hard work started. So um, that was a really good education. I learned how to look after football boots. I was a boot boy um, in charge of boots for a couple of years. Then uh, managed to get in the first team when I was, uh, I think I was 17, 18. I got in the first team and, um, and I stayed in it for about four or five years. And then my mate at the time, who was a couple of years older than me, Philip Neal, um, suddenly went off to Liverpool and uh, he went to Liverpool for 60 grand. And uh, I was absolutely gobsmacked that Liverpool would actually be watching um, a team in the fourth division, you know. Um, and Phil suddenly went off to Liverpool. And I think he really inspired me to think that, because uh, I thought I'd be stuck at Northampton for the rest of my life. Uh, Phil went off to Liverpool and I suddenly realised that, you know, big clubs, Premier League clubs were coming to watch us every week. So um, I really sort of got my head down and started to work up a lot, lot harder. And um, when I was 23, um, I got f pulled in by the chairman um, to tell me that Villa had had been interested in me and uh, they wanted me to go and have a trial. So me and Alan Evans, Alan Evans was at Dunfermline and I was uh, obviously at Northampton and the two of us, we had a trial. Uh, we had a week's trial at, uh, at Bodymore um, and we come and train with the first team and this was my big chance. If I had a, a good week, a good week's training, there was a good chance that Villa would sign me, which of course uh, they did. They signed both me and Alan. Uh, that summer of 77, that just won the League Cup. Brian had just scored the winner at Old Trafford in the replay. And, um, you know, I walked into a dressing room there where the likes of Brian Little, Andy Gray, uh, Leighton Phillips, uh, John Burridge, um, all these guys um, were sort of household names. And I'd only ever seen them on television. And suddenly I'm, I'm sharing a dressing room with them. And... Um, it was uh, it, it was an amazing feeling for me to think that all those years I'd had at Northampton playing in the first... I played, like, almost 200 games, I think, for them over, like, a five-year period. So I'd got a lot of games under my belt. I was fairly experienced in that respect, but obviously not at the Premier League level. And um, and then, of course, um, I went that, uh, that pre-season. That was my first pre-season under Ron Saunders. And uh, it was hard work, mate, I have to tell you. Uh, Ron was a tough guy to work for, but um, he produced results, as you know. So, uh, so it, it was, a, it was a, a very exciting stage of my life, I have to say. I think it was 40 grand, I think, Villa, Villa paid for you. But yeah. in terms of you, kind of, do you get a signing-on fee? What, what's the lifestyle like, John, for a, a top-flight footballer who's 23 years old in 1977? We've got, we've got a picture of you, first of all, that Dan's going to flash up. First of all, what's going on with that moustache? You look like Boise out of um, Only Falls and Horses, if you know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was, yeah, I could sell a few cars in those days. I had to. Yeah, you can take it down now, thank you. Uh, yeah, I was, on, I was on £50 a week at Northampton. £50 a week and uh, probably £5 appearance. And uh, Ron Ron sat me down in, in his house. I went over to his house in Knoll to sign the contract. Alan Bennett was was the company secretary. Uh, it was it was Tony Barton that had seen me. Tony Barton had seen both me and Alan play. 
but Ron hadn't seen us. That's why we went for the for the week's trial. But uh, Ron then saw us, obviously, wanted to sign us that summer. And I went to Ron's house to sign, and um, he doubled my salary. He put me on £100 a week, which was, for me, was just, you know, it was like lottery money. Um, and I think I got, I got about five grand um, signing on fee that was spread over three years, you know, something like that, about 1500 a year, something like that as, as a signing on fee. And suddenly, um, suddenly I was rich, you know, that was a real feeling of, of being rich. Ron was giving me an opportunity to establish myself and, and make myself sort of a permanent fixture in the team. So um, I really got my head down and, I just thought, well, you don't get chances like this very often. So I worked at it as, as hard as I could. And, you know, I could run. I, I had a good engine. But you know what? I could never beat Frank Caridas in the cross country. <laughs> uh, I could beat John Burridge. John Burridge could run. So John Burridge immediately hated me because uh, he always used to finish second behind Frank. Now he was finishing third behind both Frank and myself. But I could never catch Frank. Frank was unbelievable, his distance running. Um, but I did, I, I, I did okay. I could never beat him, but I could beat most of the others. And um, I think Ron quite quite liked me, the fact that I could run and I was fit and I was uh, hungry still, you know. Um, and he hadn't paid a lot of money for me. And, and to be honest, Northampton were going to get another 25 grand if I played 25 matches. So they'd get a kick on. So obviously they wanted me to get in the team and... Um, and clock up the appearances as as quickly as I could, so they'd get another payday. And of course, I got another payday as well. I got another uh, kickback, sort of signing on for about another thousand pound or something. Which you know, a thousand pound to me was like a million pound today. Um, so yeah, so life life changes. I never had a car. I never had a car at all um, until I signed for the Villa. And obviously, with the, with the extra money, extra salary, I was able to. Uh, to actually go and buy a car for the first time. I was 23 years old. It was the first car I'd ever had. And I'd never been on a plane. I was 23 years old. And, and I don't think there's many 23-year-olds in the world today that have never been on an airplane. I'd never been on a flight, ever. And um, we went off to Bilbao at the start of that season. That was the first time I'd ever been on a plane. And we flew to Bilbao to play in a pre-season tournament. And... Uh, the gaffer, Ron, he hated flying, hated it. And he'd, uh, he'd be supping his, uh, his brandy, trying to calm himself down a bit. And I can remember him saying to me, uh, Grego, he used to call me Grego, Grego, he said, what do you like flying? Do you enjoy flying? And I said, yeah, I love it. It's great. <laughs> I've never been on a plane in my life. Uh, and, uh, and he hated it. He, he, was, he was scared to death of planes. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I'd ever been on a plane. I was 23 years old and... That kind of thing doesn't really happen these days to a 23-year-old footballer. So all these um, all these new things were coming to me and it was very exciting, very enjoyable. And then suddenly sort of going out, playing at Villa Park in front of, you know, 35,000, 40,000 people. Um, that in itself was, was daunting. Um, for me, that's, I think the most I'd ever played in front of up until then was maybe 10, 12,000 people, you know, in a in a fourth division game. So uh, all, all these things were coming at me thick and fast. And, um, you know, I was enjoying every minute of it.
76 mm. games or 76 appearances anyway, I think you, yeah. you made in, in two seasons, 11 yeah. goals. Did, did you quickly feel that you belong there? Um, not the, the first season was, I was, uh, I, I played one, one game, I might play two, but I was just filling in for everybody in that first year. And um, I, I just literally, uh, if somebody was injured, I'd, I'd take his place. I, I had, great versatility and whenever Ron said to me I want you to play left back today I just said yeah no problem my my preferred position really was as a midfield player but I couldn't establish myself there we had Dennis Mortimer in the centre midfield Frank Caridus uh, and they were you know they were, those guys were first choice every week um, and I just filled in for everyone and, and obviously we back in those days you only had I think we only had one substitute I, I often would be substitute I would uh, often not actually get on the field to play. Um, substitutes weren't used quite as much as they are today. Weeks went by and, and I'd obviously play a few games in the reserves. I didn't play many games in the reserves, but um, Ron sort of kept me as, as the utility man. And uh, as I said, I, I played right back, left back, uh, centre midfield. I played midfield on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side. And um, I was always willing to do that. Um, and I could always do a sort of a decent job, you know. Um, I might not have been outstanding, but I could always do a decent job for the gaffer until sort of the preferred player got himself fit and, and obviously he would then come straight back into the team. And uh, the second season was, was a lot better. Um, I became a little bit more established and, uh, you know, I really felt like uh, a first choice in the second season. I think the second season I played... 40 or 42 matches the second season and uh, Ron actually made me captain Dennis Mortimer was injured for a couple of games and he made me captain of the team ahead of people like Andy and Tommy Craig and Johnny Gibman and Brian Little um, and Frank Caritas uh, and he made me captain of the team for the couple of games I think Morty was was either suspended or injured um, and I just wanted to play everywhere. And, and there's obviously the, the story of me wearing every outfield shirt, um, which I needed one shirt to complete the uh, the set. And that was Brian's number eight. Uh, I hadn't worn number eight because obviously he wore it every week. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, we used to wear numbers from one to 11 in those days. Um, you didn't have your name on the back, but you just wore numbers from one to 11 and, I wore, um, I'd worn nine outfield shirts. I'd worn the substitutes shirt as well. Not worn the goalkeeper shirt, but I, I still needed number eight uh, to complete the set. And we played Liverpool at home on Easter Monday. Um, they came to, to Villa Park on uh, Easter Monday afternoon, three o'clock kickoff. And I wanted the number eight and Brian was injured. He didn't play that day. So I said to the gaffer, no, sorry, I said to Dennis Mortimer, can I wear the, Can you ask the gaffer for me if I can wear the number eight today? And he said, no, I'm not asking him. You can bloody ask him. <laughs> so, I was, I, I was shitting myself, actually. I didn't want to go and ask the gaffer because I thought it would be like him just to scrub my name off the team sheet completely and tell me to go home. Um, so I kind of went up to him very sheepishly and, and asked him if I could wear the number eight shirt today because I said, boss, it's the only shirt I haven't worn. And I'd like to wear it to complete the set. And he just said, yeah, okay, no problem. And that was it. So I wore the number eight. I played centre-half alongside Alan Evans. 
wearing the number eight shirt on my back and, and that, that kind of completed the set and we won 3-1. I actually wore the number nine shirt. I wore Andy, Andy's shirt. Andy's was the number nine. And um, the first game of 77-78 season, no, big pardon, 78-79 season, the first game in uh, August 98 was Wolves at home. Andy scored against Wolves a club that obviously he was going to join a little bit later on, but he scored the uh, the only goal. We won one nil first home game and he, he got injured in the game. And on the Wednesday night, we played at White Hart Lane and uh, Ozzy Ardiles and uh, Ricky Villa were making their home debuts uh, for, for Tottenham against us. Nobody even mentioned the opposition uh, in the build-up to the game. Uh, it was all about Ardiles, all about Ricky Villa. World world champions they were. They just won the World Cup with Argentina. There was 40-odd thousand at White Hart Lane. We got the ticker tape welcome onto the pitch when the two teams come out. And no one even mentioned us. I, I'm sure people would have said at the time, who's it they're playing today? And someone said, oh, I don't know. Um, but it was us. We, we went there. And um, I got Andy's number nine on. playing. Up, I played up front. Uh, me and Brian's. Uh, together up front and uh, we obviously beat them 4-1 it was an amazing result by us I managed to score Brian scored Alan Evans scored and a guy called Gary Shelton got the fourth for us and we won 4-1 at uh, at White Hart Lane and um, that was a really uh, special night special occasion Um, and as I said I wore Andy's number nine shirt I'm sure that I think it was a shirt actually that helped me more than anything. <laughs> I think it it did something. It turned me it turned me into a striker that number nine. But uh, yeah, so that was a that that was a, a very special night and a, a special time. So you know that season was as I say it was very good for me and um, I look back on it with uh, with fond memories and and to be honest, I just thought everything was was cushy. I just thought you know I'm here at Villa now. I'll probably be here for the next three or four seasons, you know, I obviously just wanted to try and keep in the team and keep on the right side of run, you know, more than anything. What happened then? Because obviously you, you said you, you saw some of the Andy Gray one and yeah. Andy Gray was saying that the kind of, there's a few little moments that kind of, when the cracks started to appear, was it, was it the same with you, John? How, how did, how did your exit come about? And listen, everything was great. At the end of, at the end of every season, um, we didn't have freedom of contract, as you know, if your contract had expired, you still belonged to the club and you couldn't leave without their permission. So the season, uh, the season finished and at the end of every season, we used to sit at Bodymore in, in the canteen um, and there'd be a queue to have, you had to go and see the gaffer. The gaffer had, had organised um, all the players that were going to be uh, negotiating and talking about a new contract and you had to go and see Ron. Uh, the gaffer, you you went in, you didn't have an agent. We didn't have agents in those days. It was just you and you'd go in and uh, Ron would say to you, you've either got, you know, um, a £20 rise, a £50 rise, £100 rise. Um, Going to give you a new contract, extend, extend your contract. And wh- whatever Ron said, basically, you just nodded your head and agreed to it. <laughs> so I can remember us all sitting outside at the table and all saying, well, how much are you going to ask for? Um, and you'd say, oh, I'm going to tell him it's got to double my wages and all that. And of course, as soon as you went in there, you didn't say a word. Ron just told you what you were getting, if anything, and you just nodded your head, accepted it and went out. Um, So I was now on um, 
I was now on 150 pound a week. He'd given me a, 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 a 50% increase from the previous season. And I knew that the top salary was £250 a week. And I'd played more than 40 games that season for him. I'd been captain of his team twice. Um, and I wanted 250 quid. Simple as that. I wanted the same money as, as Brian, Andy, Tommy Craig and Johnny Gibman. We're all on, we're all on uh, 250 a week. And I wanted 250 a week. And he offered me 225 and I said, uh, no, I said, I want 250. And he said, well, you're not having 250. You have 225 and that's it. Uh, again, it gave me another 50% increase from the previous season. He said, you've had 50% increase first year, 50% increase the second year. Now I'm giving you 50% increase. I said, no, I want 250. So I, I argued over 25 quid. And uh, the players were going to go to Mallorca on the Saturday as a... Uh, End of, like an end of season, a uh, little jolly up, you know, for a few days sunshine, a few beers, uh, which, of course, they did almost every year. And um, I said, well, I ain't coming Saturday. If you're not going to give me this deal, I'm not coming Saturday. He said, well, you've got to because it's all been booked. And I said, well, I ain't coming, not unless you give me my 25 quid. And I want £250 a week. And he said, well, you're not getting it. And I said, well, well I ain't coming then. Cut the story short, I didn't go. I didn't go on the Saturday. And uh, about... I would say probably two or three weeks later, I got a phone call at home from the gaffer telling me that um, he'd agreed a deal with me to go to Brighton. Uh, And he said, do you want to talk to them? And I said, uh, yeah, all right, I'll go. I'll go and talk to them. So I went and talked to them. And they they actually offered me £275 a week, which was, um, you know, quite a big increase for myself. And they offered me various other signing on fees and loyalty payments. And, you know, I mean, it was um, it was purely a, a financial deal f- uh, for me. They just got promoted into the Premier League for the very first time um, in their history. Everything just sort of fell into place. And, you know, but I was um, I was obviously very influenced, Matt, by, by the finance. It was something that, I, you know, obviously I look back on a, a few years later and and I, I rushed into it, really. I hurried into it. Because um, on reflection, you know, had I stayed, I'm, I'm sure I'd have forced my way into the team and stayed in the team um, and done okay for him. But, I mean, as, as it turned out, the, a couple of years later, they won, they won the, the, the championship. They finished top of the league and um, qualified for the European Cup, which, of course, they won in 82. So... I missed out on all that, and not to say that I would have been in the team during that period, but nevertheless, I, I gave up the chance of being part of that um, very successful team, the, the most successful team in, in Villa's history. Um, and that was my own fault, really, for jumping at the money. Um, and I think in years gone by, in years gone by, Matt, I, whenever I've either moved as a player or as a coach or whatever, I've always tended to go away and sleep on it for 24 hours, you know, which, and I always remember rushing away from, from Villa far too quickly. And, um, you know, I mean, history is what it is um, and I have to live with it. But there, there were times when I looked at and saw how well they were doing and, and, and without any doubt, I had, uh, there were some envious eyes um, from the South Coast, looking how well uh, the Villa were doing. So just for context, John, 25 quid a week back then, what would it have got you? Would it have been the equivalent of 200 quid now or 100 quid now? Or? Yeah, I mean, 
it was it was a lot of money. I mean, twenty five quid was 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 serious money. Um, I was probably on twenty five pound appearance money at the villa in those days. Probably twenty five pound a week, uh, twenty five pound appearance money, or maybe fifty pound appearance money. But um, you know, it, it was it was it was a lot of money to me. That twenty five quid was a lot of money to all of us, uh, without any question. But it was more the principle. You know, I I, I know that. In my second season, um, 78-79 season, Tommy Craig played about 20 matches, if I remember rightly. Um, Andy didn't play that many matches because he, he often was injured. Um, I, I'm not, I think Brian missed a few games through injury. And, and I, I, I used to think, well, you know, I played a lot of games. You know, I was always playing and, and I'd play in all different positions for Rod. Right back, left back, centre. I'll, I'll do whatever he wanted. I was quite happy to do that because it always. I always made sure I got a game. You know, if I wasn't so versatile, I probably wouldn't have played so many matches. And uh, it was more a case of principle uh, more than anything. I felt that I really deserved to be earning the top salary when I played forty odd games, and there was other players that were playing twenty odd games, getting more money than me. Um, and I think it was more out of principle that I um, that I jumped up and down over twenty five quid. And, but of course, you don't cross, or you didn't used to cross Ron. Um, he he took it fairly personal, and he just wanted me out the door basically as as quickly as as as, as I could. So um, that was it. I always feel the need to apologise, John, when we kind of run, we kind of almost airbrush out the rest of other people's careers when they're not out of Villa because we've got so much to ask yeah. about Villa. So I hope you don't mind. If yeah, we, no. Now, now skip back to when you come back to Villa with Brian as Brian's first team coach, was it? Yeah, in yeah, 19, yeah. 1994, I believe, right. November time, 1994. So yeah. just, Brian, just Brian's take, birthday, actually. That's right, Brian's 40th, I think, wasn't it, if I remember rightly? Um, oh, 60th, surely. <laughs> <laughs> there, there speaks somebody who's, who's got a full head of black hair compared to a... Right. Not exactly black, but, you know. Just before we come, we get you back at, at Villa as a coach, was coaching always the natural progression once you'd no. stopped playing? No, it was, uh, I was 27 and I signed for QPR as a player. Uh, Terry Panable signed me at QPR as a player. And uh, this guy just, uh, I, I looked at this guy working every day with him and I suddenly realised that I'd never been coached in my life. And I was 27 and I've been a pro footballer for 11, 12 years. And uh, this this guy could, was, was such an amazing coach. He taught me so much about my own personal game. Um, within within two years of signing for him, I played for England. I was 29 years old. Uh, you know, I was a granddad. Uh, in football terms, I was a granddad. And I, I got in the England side. And I, I remember saying to him one day, I wish I'd have known you, Gaffer. This is Terry. I wish I'd have known you, Terry, when I was... When I was uh, 16 years old, I think, you know, I would have been a much better player had I worked for you um, during that time. And um, but he, he taught me so much about coaching and all that. And, and, and I suddenly uh, he, he suddenly said to me one day, what are you do when you finish? And I said, oh, hang on, I'm only 27. <laughs> what are you talking about that for? And he said, uh, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm not really. He said, well, what? Would you want to go into coaching? And I went, yeah, I probably do, you know. But I hadn't really given it a moment's thought, Matt. You know um, what I was going to do. I was twenty-seven, and, and like all 
you know, uneducated footballers, you only think about tomorrow. Uh, you never think about uh, years down the line um, at that particular time. Um, and and uh, he, he said, do you want fancy coaching? And I, and I said, well, yeah, yeah, maybe. And he said, well, why don't you do something about it now? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, why don't you go on coaching courses? Why don't you take more uh, on, on the on the, the teaching side, you know, take some coaching sessions, go and teach at local school, go and put yourself up in front of people and take in a, a group of kids, even if they're 10 years old, you know. He said, you can go and be a coach and you can speak to people and, and stand up and, and talk in front of kids and try and teach them stuff. And and I'd never really given it that, that much thought. And um, he said, you should start writing things down. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you if you see things that you like, if you see coaching sessions that you like, he said, if you see my coaching sessions, and, and he said, you want to you want to write them down and, and remember them. And he said, you might want to use them one day. And and, and that sort of, the light bulb uh, switched on in my brain. And uh, I, I started going home and writing down exactly what we'd done that day uh, with, with Terry. Um, write down all these sessions. I've still got the exercise books to this day. Um, I've kept them all, all these years and um, written that. And obviously when I first went into coaching and that, I, I started looking at these books and used them all, almost as reference books. Uh, and, I, and I'd see a session, I think, oh yeah, I remember doing that with, with Terry. Uh, I'll put that on tomorrow. And, and obviously always with that, um, you, you copy stuff from coaches, but you always then just maybe change one or two things. Instead of it being a, a 5v5, I used to make it a 6v6. Then, you know, I wasn't exactly copying it um, verbatim as such. So uh, I started, and then I started making up my own little sessions. I'd sit there sometimes, just draw, I might be on the bus or something, and just drawing sessions. And then I started seeing things on TV, and you see, you know, free kicks and corners and things like that. So I just used to write them down and, and, and keep them in a book. Um, and then just look back at them uh, over the years and uh, some, you know, some days I'd, I'd sit there looking at my, my diary for the week, um, the coaching diary for the week. And, and I'd just suddenly go back to, to these books where I'd written down two or three sessions and I'd use them for, for training. And the thing about Terry's tra training sessions were they were different every day. There was something different. He'd come in, he'd come in and he'd set up all these cones and bollards and everything. And it was always something different, always something fresh, always something exciting. And he really, he was the one that really turned me on with, with, with going into coaching. And um, obviously when I went to Leicester with Brian, who uh, he wanted me on, on the training. And between us, me and Evo, we used to look after the, the training sessions as best we could. And slowly as time evolved, I became a bit more of the of the first team coach, whereas Alan became more of an assistant manager. He was he was superb uh, on the administration side, you know, in the office and and doing all the the, the paperwork and and the admin, that arranging booking hotels and all that kind of stuff. So between the three of us, we seem to have got it sussed, you know, and and that really was was uh, was a lot of. Um, ownership that brian gave me to 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 be his uh first team coach he still had the final say on everything of course um and obviously then we we did fairly well there we were quite successful at leicester and consequently villa came calling and um for the gaffer and um 
he sat down with me one day and told me that Villa had been on the phone and we got a chance to go there. And I said, come on and get your keys, let's go. <laughs> I'm ready. Did you remain good mates with them in the intervening years? No, listen, this is, this is 91. 1991 and um you didn't have mobile phones we i just had a house phone and uh we bumped we bumped into each other i continued to go to games still um which in those days was a way of kind of keeping in touch with everyone you know you might bump in like say you might bump into somebody at a game and um you obviously talk about football they'll ask you what, what you're doing and and the word got round obviously that i wasn't working and and brian wanted to take me so and he called me at home one day it was a shock and he he just got the leicester job he'd been at darlington and done a really good job at darlington and uh he he called me and he actually said he was going to take tony mccandrick uh and evo uh to leicester and um Tony turned it down actually, so he's obviously a coach short. So he just he just called me one day out of the blue and he said, um, "What are you up to?" And I said, "Nothing." And he said, "Well, jump in the car." And he said, um, "He's you know I've just took over at Leicester." I said, "Yeah, yeah, I've just seen it. It's brilliant." And um, he said, "Well, come up and see me." He said, "I might have a job for you." So I went up to see him and I thought it'd be like um, you know in charge of the academy or or doing schoolboy training on a Tuesday or Thursday night or something, you know. But it was actually for, as, as for, with the first team, and um, which was brilliant. So there was the three of us there, um, all ex-Villa players. Evo, of course, had, had finished playing at Leicester. So he, he still actually lived in Leicester. And um, between the three of us, we, we went to three playoff finals in three successive seasons and managed to get back into the Premier League on, on, the, on the third attempt. Um, so that in itself was pretty amazing, and we had a great time. Leicester's a good football club, got great facilities, great training ground. Um, used to be the old Filbert Street, of course, which was always a, a, a very good atmosphere there. And we had a really good time there, Matt. Uh, but but then obviously when the Villa come calling, you don't say no to them. You told me last week when we were setting up this chat, and I hope I'm not betraying confidence, but I think you described it as the best gig you'd ever had being yeah. kind of Brian, one of Brian's assistants at Villa. Talk, talk us through through why that was the case. There was a part of me that would still think, I want to go out and do it myself one day. But, you know, I'm, I'm Brian's assistant. I couldn't, you know, it, I couldn't have a better job. And, and we, came, we came to Villa and, you know, Leicester is a, is a great club. It's a big club, but it's not as big as Villa. And, and Villa was a big club to me. The, the history that they had, obviously, just over 10 years before, they, they were champions of Europe. Um, you've got the huge stadium, you've got Bodymore Heath, you've got the following uh, that they got, um, 40, 45,000, whatever. The, you know, I think in those days it was 37,000 was the capacity at Villa Park. For me, everything about the club, I remember coming, we were sponsored by ASICS in those days. And uh, they were the kit. That was the kit. And um, Muller Yogurts were the sponsors. And, uh, and mate, first day I went to the training ground, Jim Paul, who's kit man, bless his heart, God bless him. I loved, I loved Jim to bits, mate. I loved him to bits. Um, he come up to me. He said, oh, come down. He said, I've got, I've got all your gear. So I went down his office and he gave me like three black bin liners full of kit. <laughs> 
just absolutely rammed full of, of shirts and sweaters and sh- training shoes and boots and God knows what else. And then he said, do you want a yogurt? And he pointed across to me. There's, <laughs> there was like about 30, 30 trays of, of, um, of, of these Muller yogurts. You know, he said, do you want, do you want any of these? He said, take a few of them. You know, so w- within, within a couple of weeks, my, I, I actually bought another fridge from my garage because <laughs> I was just taking on... And we had a queue at our front door, you know, my, my son was coming over, my daughter was coming over, next door neighbours all coming to pick up. I was taking orders, you know, they're saying, oh, we've had enough of that banana yogurt, Can you, can't you bring us some of the, the chocolate ones, you know, so we had mullet yogurts everywhere, like Del Boys, you know, like Del Boys flat. Uh, you lift up a cushion on the sofa, there was like half a dozen mullet yogurts. It was, um, yeah, but, you know, suddenly, you know, we got all, as I said, we got all that. I'm 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 the first name coach of Aston Villa for God's sake, you know, amazing job. And I didn't have any worries, you know. I was I was really really chilled. And every day I'd go in. I I, I was, you know, as, as a coach, you can be, you're kind of fifty percent with the players, and fifty percent, you know, you're you're with the manager. Um, so I could go, go in the dressing room, and players would carry on talking. Brian would walk in the dressing room, and everyone shuts up. Because it's a gaffer, you know. I but I'd walk in and be, I'd get all the all the banter. I'd get Tommy Johnson, Mark Draper, uh, Andy Townsend, of course, one of the biggest jokers of all. Uh, uh, Ian Taylor uh, signed a, a couple of months after we joined, and and there was a lot of banter in the dressing room, a lot of fun, um, very enjoyable. Um, and and obviously Brian had, had we'd picked up a team that um, that was heading towards relegation. Um, in 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 ninety four ninety five season, and uh, we obviously had to try and keep them up, which was a big ask at the time. And it wasn't all it wasn't all straightforward, but but nevertheless, you know, I I was in a great job. Brian had all the problems, and uh, you know, he's the gaffer. Uh, and as I obviously later found out, you know, there'd be a queue outside outside his office on a Monday morning, <laughs> all just want to go in and and have a moan or. or discuss why they're not in the team, why they got substituted on Saturday, why they haven't got their new contract and all that kind of stuff. And that was all Brian's problems. And I just used to walk past them all and uh, go and have my dinner. Um, <laughs> and then see the gap, I see if everything was all right, you know, not doing anything else. And then I'd, I'd disappear out of the building. Didn't have a worry at all. They had nothing to worry about. So all the worries were Brian's, which, you know, obviously comes with the job. Um, as much as I would help him on, on wherever I could. You know, I, I I wouldn't sit in on his meetings with players. That was down to how he dealt with that kind of stuff. And, and you know, I had, I had the best job in the country. Um, uh, as I said, you know, I'd, I'd leave there some Fridays. Obviously, we used to play most Saturdays in those days. Um, I'd leave on a Friday and um, I didn't even know what the team was the next day. It, it, wasn't my, it wasn't really my problem as much as I was interested I thought, well, if Brian wants to tell me, he'll tell me. But if he doesn't want to tell me, then then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll stay strong. I'll just keep things to myself. And and I'd go out there Friday afternoon. I'd go out with my mates on a Friday night, have a few beers, have a bite to eat, um, and not really worrying about you know tomorrow. I've got to announce the team, and he's not going to be happy, and he's not going to be happy, and he's going to come and see me on Monday morning and kicking up a sting. He's going to be bloody miserable, uh, and all those things that a manager has to deal with. Um, I didn't have that problem. I was, I'd learn from him. I'd watch him always, Matt. I'd, uh, 
I'd see how he dealt with things and uh, see how he got on with it and try and gain the experience of, 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 of Brian because he was very, very good at his job. And, um, you know, I wanted to learn from him in that respect. But no, um, being a coach, it was it was a great job. And as I said, I could still, I was still kind of a, a player in a way. I could go in the dressing room and have the banter with the lads and, you know, they'd tell me what they've been up to the last couple of weeks, which... Um, wasn't for the manager's ears, but uh, but was for my ears, you know. And they knew that wherever they told me, I'd keep it to myself uh, anyway. So um, so it was great, you know. And I could join in the I could join in a little five aside and all that. In fact, I used to join in the warm up with them and on on a match day on a, on a Saturday. And um, it was it was really was a, a, a great time for me at that particular moment and. Uh, and I said to Brian, actually, though, Matt, which I didn't say to you earlier, was when he got the call from, when we were at Leicester and he got the call from Villa and he said, I want you to come with me, JG, uh, me, you and Evo, we're going to go to Villa. Um, and he said, are you up for it? And I said, I said, well, to be honest, Gaff, I said, that there might come a time when I want to go out and do it myself and be my own manager. Um but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll come and obviously for two years, we signed a two-year contract. And I said, for two years, I'll come and I'll support you and, and be your assistant, be your coach and everything. And um, But there might come a time after the two years when I maybe want to go off and, and have a go myself. Uh, and he said, well, if somebody wants you, it would mean that you do, you've done a good job for me. Um, if somebody wants to come and take you away and, and make you... Uh, the head coach or the manager of their team that would suggest that you've done a good job for me. So, um, and he said, I shall promise you, he said, I'll make sure that Doug will not ask for compensation for you. Um, if, if in fact you do go. And I said, yeah, I said, come on, we'll go. And, and, and I'll be there for two years. And, and in fact, we signed in November of 94 and I was there until October 96 when I obviously got the chance to go off to, to Wickham and do my own thing. So, um, but those uh, those couple of years were were brilliant. We had some great players. I mean, I mean, you look at the team we inherited: Ray Houghton, Andy Townsend, Daly and Atkinson, uh, Earl Barrett, Mark Bosnich, Paul McGrath, Steve Staunton, uh, Gary Parker, John Fashion, who was there. Uh, I say Daly and Dean Saunders, Kingy, left back. Uh, we had some brilliant players. I'm sorry if I've left anybody out, but we really had some amazing players. Ron. Ron left us some great players. Uh, Ray Houghton, what footballer he was. Incredible footballer. Uh, and that little Irish quartet that we had, Townsend, Houghton, uh, Staunton and McGrath, um, were, were just amazing. They were, they were brilliant players to work with. Um, and slowly, though, over a period of time, Brian, he, he built his own team there, as you know. Uh, a few of those guys, we gave them a little... I think when we joined, we gave them a little bit of a buzz... You know, we lifted the place a little while, but um, obviously a lot of them now were coming towards the end of their contracts. And uh, Brian was quite keen to bring in his own men, which, of course, he did uh, over the forthcoming years. What would be the measure of success for a first? Obviously, you want the first team to win the matches on a weekend. But if that happens, the manager gets all the glory. If it doesn't, the manager gets all the stick. But for you, day to day, was it kind of making sure your training sessions were bright? Was it for seeing the improvements in, in individual players? How did you kind of 
gauge what had been a good week? Winning, actually. I mean, listen, match day, if you, if you win, it can, you know, it can cover up a multitude of sins, you know, it really can. It can cover up so much. Uh, just winning on, on, on a weekend. Um, no one's got any arguments with you whatsoever. People can say, oh, it was drab, it was awful, it was boring. Uh, one nil, yeah, you, you know, it was like it was a penalty as well. You know, you, you know, you probably didn't deserve to win, but you won. And and with with winning, with with gaining points, um, it's always your, it's it's the best support you can have um, for yourself as a coach or, or or as the manager. You know, you win games, you win games, you win games. You win a cup, you win a trophy. You don't care. Have a look in the record books. Have a look back. Have a look back at the history, you know, um, Cup, even during our time there, you know, um, it was always about winning. But you, you always felt, I always felt in my particular role that I have to put on the best training sessions each and every week, you know, inspired by some of the stuff that I'd learned with Venables. You know, I wanted to always try and make it interesting, always wanted to try and make it different. Every day was something different. Um, always willing to try stuff, different free kicks. You'll, you'll look back on, occasionally you'll see the odd free kick on Twitter, which is um, um, during the, the mid-90s. And, and they've come from our training ground, you know. We, we spent time working on some of the free kicks and set pieces and that, which, which obviously when they come off on a Saturday, I used to enjoy because it was me that instigated them um, on the training field during the week. But no, we, we always had to win. You know, that first, Six months we were there from the November round till May. Um, we had to stay in the Premier League. Uh, otherwise, we were under extreme pressure over retaining our jobs for the following season. Um, so we had to stay up. And, and listen, we I think it was the penultimate game. I think uh, we drew at Norwich, if I remember rightly. Uh, in, in early May, we drew at Nor Norwich one each. And I think everybody else either drew or whatever. But we managed to stay up. Um, but it was really by the skin of our teeth. Um, we we hadn't been brilliant during those first five or six months uh, with Brian as the gaffer, and and we were papering over the cracks a lot of the times, you know. Uh, but but we managed to keep up, and that was the most important thing. And and obviously we went started from scratch the following season. But no, I mean I I took I took um, a lot of pleasure out of honestly working with those players was just amazing having the opportunity to work with Staunton and Houghton and Townsend and McGrath um, and and see obviously the likes of Hugo Egiog was just emerging at that particular time uh, Bozzi was in goal was was um, was also like brilliant guy to have around the place as well and and we we ourselves were very fortunate fortunate to inherit such a, a quality squad and um, I just enjoyed working with them on, every day and, and some days I had to pinch myself to think of the uh, the ability and the quality of the, of the players that we were now working with um, but as a coach you know that that inspired me as well and it's amazing how you know one minute they're working with Ron Atkinson next minute they're working with us and footballers always are always adaptable you know and they adapted to us I think very very quickly and I think that Brian had such a good CV when he joined Villa. Being an, uh, an ex-player there as well, I think, was, was obviously a lot easier for him to, to settle. He settled in, obviously, with the fans and so on and so forth. But, um, 
uh, it was a great time, uh, Matt. And um, the following season, obviously, we did a lot better. 25 years since Aston Villa won a trophy. It's funny you saying about the free kicks because we were speaking to Ian Taylor last week. Um, and I think it was the Mark Draper free kick that started the run that year. Against it, Chester. I think, yeah, I think it was, uh, was it Peterborough? Townsend's flicked the ball up and That's Draper's it. volleyed it in. It, was, that, was that one of yours, John? Yes, it was one of mine. Um, it was one one of mine. Yeah, we, we'd go on the. I mean, obviously, this this is always this is always um, sometimes difficult. You go you go on the on the training field and you work at free kicks, and you you know you, you kind of have to use the guys that are likely to play in the next match. Uh, and as I said, I would never actually know what the team was, so it was. Uh, I'd, I'd involve them and I'd say to somebody, oh, no, you don't need to be in this free kit. And they'd say to me straight, oh, I'm not playing then. Next game. So I'd say, no, no, I don't know what to so, so anyway, I used to sort of, you obviously sort of use the people that you're expecting to be start in the next game. Um, and you, you need to remind, and you go through it four, five, six, ten times, whatever. And obviously it starts to work and it's, it's, everything's great. And then suddenly we get a free kick in exactly the position for this free kick and someone else takes it and this is footballers you know suddenly Steve Staunton says oh, I'm going to have this I'm going to smash it in the top corner you know and it's like Stan you're, you're nothing to do with this free kick go away you know but now I'm on the bench so I can't actually talk to any of the players so yeah I mean you know sometimes you have to be extremely disciplined as a player to to remember exactly what you're supposed to be doing um but yeah, we had we had a few up our sleeve, and I, I do remember that free kick. It was actually shown on on Twitter, I think, in the last twelve months, and I had a wry smile when I saw it, and I just thought, yeah, I remember it. Mark, Mark Draper, he actually Andy had to flick it onto his knee, and he he he, he needed he flicked it up with his knee into the air, and then volleyed it um in into the corner of the net so um yeah i do remember that free kick coming off well we know that it was a great season all round villa finished fourth semi-final of the um of the fa cup but just just focusing just briefly on the league cup brian yes. didn't remember much about the build-up to the final when we asked him can you remember I presume it was part of your your role to keep the guys relaxed wasn't it in the, in the run-up can you remember much about it yes i remember a lot about it we decided to go to the selsden park hotel in Croydon, which is a, a very nice hotel, got nice grounds on it, got a golf course on it, and uh, they've got a lot of snooker tables. There's a snooker room there, and um, we, uh, uh, we we found a training field uh, relatively close, and we were, I, I seem to remember, we were playing quite a lot of matches because we're, we were in the FA Cup semi-final as well. We'd had a very good FA Cup run, but had obviously a very good League Cup run. So we're playing lots of matches, uh, as well as playing our league matches as well. Obviously, got 38 league games to play. So we were involved in a lot of games going on. And uh, to be honest, training was, was it was always just a question of just ticking over. You know, we, we'd play on Saturday, we'd have a game Tuesday night or Wednesday night. And then we're playing again the following Saturday or Sunday. And um, games were coming thick and fast. And uh, training became, as I said, very relaxed. We sometimes we'd even just have a walk. Some days we'd just go out and we'd just walk the whole perimeter of Bodymore Heath, and we'd walk around two or three times. That was it. Go in and have a bit of lunch and send up, give them a wash and uh, have a massage or something, and then send them home. And we went to Selsden Park, 
and uh, we didn't really do anything. We let the boys play snooker. They obviously had had a had a curfew in the evening to go back to their beds and so on and so forth. Come down for breakfast the next morning. Went to the this local training ground, and I remember this one morning we went to training ground. It was it was about a, a day or two days just before the final at Wembley against Leeds United. We had a we had a sort of eight nine aside on this on this pitch, and uh, one of the goalkeepers had a bit of a knock. So Jim Paul went in goal, big fat Jim, who was about twenty stone. He went in goal. Uh, Paul McGrath didn't want to train because Paul was God, as you know. And we used to say, to "Paul, do you want to train?" And he'd say, "Are we playing five aside?" And we'd say, "No." He said, "Well, I don't want to train." So, so he wouldn't. He wouldn't train if there was any running involved. So he didn't train that morning. He didn't want to train that morning. Uh, somebody else didn't want to train because he had a bit of a knock, and, and so we ended up. I think Jim Walker played. And we ended up having this game, and uh, I said Jim Paul was in one of the goals, and it was just a mess about. I mean, we played for about forty minutes. It was real good fun. Everyone had a good laugh, and we scored some goals. He got a bit of a sweat on, you know, and and then we went back. We went back, had a wash, all had a shower and that, and then we had lunch and game of snooker. End of. That was it. That was training for the day. And as you know, we went on to win the game three nil. Uh, but the story that comes with that is that we were being watched. You know how B- you know how Bielsa this year went and spied on the opposition? Yeah. Well, unbeknown to us at that particular time, because we found out uh, six months or so later, Howard had actually got somebody to come and watch us training. <laughs> okay. And he stayed, at, he stayed at the Selsden Park Hotel and he had to report back to Howard who had lunch, what they had for lunch, who had bre- Who got up and had breakfast, what did, what did they do, how many of them were playing snooker, who were, who were the ones that were playing snooker. He had to follow us to the training ground and he said, your kit, I had to go back and tell Howard Wilkinson that the kit man played in goal this morning. <laughs> <laughs> the physio played on the left wing. <laughs> Paul McGrath just sat on the side doing nothing, eating an uh, an orange and an apple or something. He just sat on the side. Uh, He did so. He didn't train. This one didn't train. And and honestly, he had to go back and report all these things to him. And and that's and we went and obviously played the game one three nil. And it could have been six nil. We played exceptionally well that day, uh, and the team were were brilliant. Um, But that that was. I can remember that story of, of this guy who was uh, uh, he, he no he, he was no longer working for Howard, so he, he he told us that he followed us for three days, and he was having to report back all these weird stories to Howard. And I think Howard thought he was taking the Mickey, but it was uh, the gospel on the strip. We, we had we had a very relaxed atmosphere uh, going to the final, um, but that season, as you know, as you just said, Matt, you know, we finished fourth in the Premier League, which was, when you look at it now, it was amazing. Um, we got to the semi-final of the FA Cup and we absolutely pulverised Liverpool, but they had three shots, honestly. They had three shots in the game and scored from all three. And um, and then, of course, we won we won the League Cup with uh, with, with an incredible performance. That was, uh, 
that was really amazing. Coming so soon after sort of joining the club as well. And, and Brian had almost revamped the the team by then, you know. It, it, it almost revamped it um, with his signings. And, and all of his signings had actually worked, um, even, even Sabo. You know, Sabo scored that day as well, as you know. But um, we were beginning to see the real quality side of, of Milosevic. Uh, he, he was a really talented player. He just had to get his head right, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, it all come. And, of course, it was big macker. Uh, McGrath was, was just, life was beginning to catch up with him a little bit, you know. Um, and uh, Brian, obviously, brought in uh, Gareth Southgate uh, to sort of be his long-term replacement. And and he converted uh, Gareth from a central, uh, sorry, from a central midfield player, yeah, in, into a central defender, um, and, and uh, he certainly did exceptionally well after that change. So uh, yeah, they were happy days, really good times, very very happy. And and as I said, I was particularly happy during that spell, um, working at such an amazing club, you know, and and being surrounded by such good footballers. We've got you up to the place where you, you with Brian um, and Alan Evans, you've kind of done your bit in rejuvenating Villa, albeit a very good Villa squad that you inherited from Ron. Stamped your mark with Brian on adapting that squad to, to kick on. So what what was it that when you got to kind of October, November um, 96, what, what was the pull then? Was it just time for you to go out on your own then? I can remember. I can remember Brian mentioned to me one day. He said, you, "You'll you'll probably feel something. <laughs> you'll probably get a feeling uh, at some stage where you know a job comes up and you you might quite fancy it." He said, "But he said, just come and see me. Just come and tell me. Tell me about it." He said, "I'll, I'll help you get it if you know what I mean. If, if it's something that you want." He said, "You know, I, I won't want to lose you." But and this this uh, I went to. We played. Newcastle United on Monday night football and Yorkie scored a hat-trick and we lost 4-3. We went up to Newcastle and checked in that more. I think it was that morning. We, we got up there early that morning, checked into the hotel in, in Newcastle and checking in at, at, the, at the counter was um, Alan Parry, the commentator. Yeah who was a director of Wickham. I kind of knew Alan over, over a period of time. And uh, I saw, how are you doing? Everything okay? He says, um, oh, he said, we've just sacked the manager this morning, which was Alan Smith. Yeah. Um, they'd, sacked, they'd sacked Alan Smith that morning. And he said, uh, you're not interested, are you, Gregor? So <laughs> I, said, oh, I said, I said, Wickham. I said, and of course, my home, my family home was, was Windsor. Um, I, I still had a house in Windsor. And um, that was kind of my family home. And um, my uh, my daughter was, my little baby girl was uh, was about a year old, just over a year old. When he said, uh, you're not interested, are you? And I went, do you know what? I said, um, I said, give me your number anyway. So I took his, I took his number. And uh, obviously we had, we had a game that night. So I focused on the game that night. And then I rang Alan uh, the day or so later and, and sort of said, well, what's going on? You know, and he's, I said, well, I, I might be quite interested, um, but I'm going to have a chat with Brian. So I went to see Brian and, and had a chat with him. And, and he said, well, you know, do what you need to do. And if you get a chance to take it, then um, come and tell me, obviously. 
keep just keep me in the picture, keep me in the loop, you know. So I ended up having an interview um, uh, and got the job. And um, then I went to see Brian and okayed it all with him. And, and he said, uh, yeah, yeah, it, if it's what you want to do, I'll give, you know, I'll allow it to happen. And he went to see the chairman and, and true to his word, he made sure that he didn't ask for any compensation. And then I had to go in the dressing room and say goodbye to everybody. And I can remember tales. I could actually remember walking in the dressing room in, in my suit because I was leaving that morning. I got a suit on and I was leaving. And um, everybody else obviously was all dressed, ready to go training. And I've walked in in my suit and I can remember Ian Taylor looking at me and he went, oh, no, because <laughs> he knew that I was going because I was all dressed up to go. I almost saw you know, I had a suitcase in my hand as well with my boots. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of knew that I was leaving. I, mean, look, I remember him looking at me saying, oh, no. <laughs> and I said, I just sort of, yeah. So I just said goodbye to everyone and thanked them all for how amazing they've been. And uh, and obviously with a he- with a heavy heart, I have to say, you know, I, I was going off to to try and prove whether or not I could actually be a manager, you know, uh, stand up on my own two feet instead of, you know, uh, travelling along on the, on Brian's coattails and and living in a sort of reflected glory from from Brian of you know if 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 the team did well Brian did well but obviously I I also did well because I was you know a, a small part of his backup team and um, I kind of wanted to go out there and and see if I could do it on my own and and be successful in my own right instead of relying on on Brian to be successful, you know? So, um, it, it was a big call and it was, um, it, it was a tough thing to go and do, um, what I was sort of walking away from, but I couldn't live, live on myself if I, if I didn't actually try and do it. Uh, and it, it was what I wanted. Um, so I took up the opportunity and, uh, it was a little bit different, uh, going into Wickham and, and obviously, and that was one of the questions that they asked me at, at at, at the interview was um yeah but john you're what you're working with like world-class internationals at the moment you're you're coming down to uh league one they were league one at the time and he said you're coming down to league one and you know the players are nowhere near as good as the ones that you're working with how how are you going to be able to adapt to it you know and i said well you know obviously i'll just that's down to me to to have to understand and appreciate that some of these players can't quite do what uh, the players at Aston Villa can do. Um, so I took that on board, but, you know, I went there and um, uh, loved it. Honestly, I absolutely loved it. We, we had a, we had a good time there during the, the 16... I was there for 16 months and I had a really good time there. So I, I didn't regret that. And it, and it made me really stand up, Matt. You know, it really made me... You know, now I had I had people outside my door on a Monday morning asking me why they're not playing, <laughs> Ask, asking me why you took me off after sixty minutes on Saturday. Uh, why did you take him off? And um, someone coming in complaining that you know they needed they wanted a new contract, and and, and I suddenly got all the crap that that <laughs> Brian had been dealing with. Um, you know, on, on a weekly basis, I now was was getting all the questions. I was now looking at myself after we got beat and and not wanting to talk to anybody, um, not wanting to uh, discuss football whatsoever, uh, going home totally miserable because we'd lost the match. 
not not speaking to the family for three days, uh, hating my goalkeeper because he'd let one in through his legs on a Saturday and we got beat 1-0 at home. You know, suddenly, it, it honestly, mate, it takes over your whole life, every single thing. And your moods, your mood swings are incredible. They go from incredible highs to unbelievable lows in such a short space of time. And, and, and that side of it, the psychology side of it, is is really, really difficult to deal with, Matt. I now was was beginning to understand how how sometimes I'd speak to Brian and he, he wouldn't even answer me uh, because his head was elsewhere, uh, which, which, which happens to you. Uh, you sit watching the telly some nights. You know, I used to sit watching the telly at night and I can't tell you even what I was watching because your mentality, your mind is, is somewhere else. You're thinking about the game on Saturday, about whether or not to change the goalkeeper, whether or not to do this, whether or not to do that. And so many things suddenly take over your life. Um, and, and this is what I wanted, you know, so I shouldn't really complain. I, I did have a choice and, and I chose to take this path and um, I had to make it work. I had to be successful. Otherwise, you know, I was going to be out of work. So how did the stresses of strands of that and your name being above the door and it all being on you for the first time, how were you able to go from that and to arrive at Villa, such a kind of, I don't know, a big brash bundle of energy and self-confidence? Was Is that you? Was Did you have to kind of put on, I think Brian described well, it as kind of putting on a suit or putting on a, putting on a kind of costume when he when he turned up as a manager, did you have to do that, or did it come naturally being a manager? You mean when I came when I came back to Villa? When you came back to Villa, yeah. No, no, it's, no, it was, it was it was very natural. I mean, listen, I'm I'm usually I'm very sort of happy go lucky, and whatever comes comes, deal with it, get on with it, shut up, don't moan about it. I've been extremely lucky, even to have done the things that I'd done up up until ninety eight February ninety eight when I came back. You know, I was extremely lucky to have had the the playing career that I'd had and, and the places I'd been to and my first flight, you know, to Bilbao in, in, in uh, 1977 and, and all those things, you know, I, I totally respect um, the the fortune that I'd been given. And I think that coming, uh, then coming back to Villa, this, this was beyond my wildest dreams, mate. Honestly, I, I just, I couldn't understand it all. It was, it was hard for me sometimes to, 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 to appreciate, not appreciate, to understand exactly what's happened to me. You know, I'm, I'm now the manager of Aston Villa. And um, it was quite incredible. No, you know, it was just me. I come in with a smile on my face. And, and in fact, the first morning's training, I used to come in every morning, walk past the dressing room with the boys and always say to them, don't be late. Meaning, when we go out for training at 10.30, don't be late. Uh, and my first morning back with the team I said, I just walked past the dressing room like I did as a coach 16 months before. And I just, I, we had no team meeting. There was no team meeting. They, they all knew me. I knew everybody except Stanley Victor. Stanley was the only one that was that was new to me. Uh, I've been away 16 months. Everyone else was the same. It was the same squad that I'd left 16 months before. So they all knew me. I, I knew all them. Uh, and I just came back, said, don't be late. And we went out and we trained that morning or that. Actually, it was an afternoon. It was a Thursday afternoon. And we trained and we had a bit of finishing, had a bit of banter, had a bit of fun, had a laugh and a joke, smile on our faces. And we're playing Liverpool on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, about 
about half two on the Saturday, I did start to panic, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just rewind a couple of days then. And was it Steve Stride who first established contact with you to kind of talk mm. about this, this crazy prospect of you being Aston Villa manager? 98, February 98, um, we just about had mobiles, uh, mobile phones, but we didn't have social media. Um, so, so things, uh, Brian walked out that morning and, and we, I was manager of Wickham. We were in Bristol. We we're playing Bristol Rovers that night at the Memorial Ground in Bristol. And we checked into a hotel uh, in the afternoon to have a, a, a cup of tea, uh, a bit of toast, beans on toast or something. And, um, and and then have a, you know, maybe a team meeting and then go off to the match. And, and the phone rang in the restaurant. We were having in a no. We were in a private room, a, a side of room, and the phone rang. The the internal phone, house phone rang, and uh, the lady come over. She said, "Oh, um, there's a telephone call for you, Mr. Gregory." So I said, "Okay, who is it?" And she said, "I don't know. It, it's it's a lady." So I went, "Oh, okay." So I went across to the phone, thinking it must be home, and um, this lady said at the other end, "Hello, Johnny." And when she said, hello, Johnny, there's only one person that ever called me Johnny. And that was Marion Stringer, which is Doug's personal secretary. And she said, hello, Johnny. And I, you know, you know, like a million things go through my mind. Why is she calling me? I, I had absolutely no idea. She, why would she call me? It's half past five at night. And um, she said, hello, Johnny. I said, Marion. She said, yes. She said, um, Steve is looking for you. And she always called Steve Stryce. She always called him Stevie. She said, Stevie's looking for you. I said, why is he looking for me? She said, haven't you heard the news? And I said, no, I've, I've no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so I said, what do you mean he's looking for me? She said, well, he, he's in Bristol. He's trying to find your hotel. So I said, oh, uh, okay. And I thought, well, maybe he wants tickets for the game. Maybe he's coming to our game tonight. That's what I thought, you know. And then uh, I called him on his mobile and he's he's actually sat outside. Our, he said, I'm sat outside. He said, have you heard the news? And I said, no. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll come out. I'll come out and, and see you. So anyway, I've gone outside, seen his car, jumped in the front seat of his car. And he said, um, so I said, well, what are you doing here for? What are you here for? And he said, um, Brian's walked out today. He's left us right in the sh- so I said, what do you mean he's walked out? He said, he's resigned this morning. I said, you're joking. And this was now up as five at night, and I, I didn't know. He said, haven't you heard? I said, no, we don't hear nothing. We just went on the bus. And, and he said, so then I'm looking at him thinking, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he said, we want you to come back. So I said, oh, yeah, but why? I said, well, what else? Thinking... You know, he wants me to come back because somebody else is taking over as a manager. They maybe want you to come back as a coach. And, and I was so happy at Wickham. Everything was great. You know, it's it's a 20-minute drive from my house um, in Windsor to Wickham. And um, everything was great. My life was, 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 was rocking, you know. And he said, no, we want you to come back as a manager. So I said... For how long? Thinking, maybe he just wants me for a couple of weeks until they find somebody. I I, I just couldn't believe or even begin to establish in my brain that they actually want me to come back as the full-time manager. It just, it wasn't registering, Matt, you know, at all. 
my, my brain was just on fire. I, I, it was fried. You know, I had no conception of what he was actually saying to me. And I was trying to to establish in my mind exactly what Steve was saying to me. And I said, when do you, like, when do you need to know? And he says, like, now would be good. And I said, but I've got a game on tonight and all that. And I said, but... And, you know, and I was almost blubbering. I just couldn't get words out. I just, honestly, mate, honestly, I was just so overwhelmed with 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 the uh, with the with conversation that I was having with Steve. And um, and I kind of sort of said, you know, does does Dub know? Have you spoke to Dub about this? And he said, yeah, yeah, he's all for it. He's all for it. it, it it's kind of my idea, but you know, he's he sent me down here to get you. And I said, well, I can't go now. I've got a game, you know. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 I know that. He said, but, he said, what, what do you think? And I said, well, yeah, you know. <laughs> really? Do you really want me? You know, you know where's Jeremy Beadle? <laughs> you, you might remember him. Uh, yeah, it was like it was like that, honestly. It's just that this is a get up. You know, Brian's going to be sat in the back of the car and he's going to pop his head around in a minute. <laughs> Something like that. But, mate, honestly, it was just... It was just unbelievable and um we we said our goodbyes and that we were going to talk later and all that and, and i said to him well I, i'll need to ask my chairman i need to get permission from my chairman who was who was amazing guy ivor beaks the chairman of, of wickham wanderers mate he was the best chairman i ever worked for uh, amazing guy and i'm gonna have to tell him that i'm leaving because make no mistake, I am leaving. <laughs> you know, uh, this, this this kind of thing doesn't happen to you uh, in your lifetime, but it was happening to me. And uh, I um, later after the game that night, after the match, um, I, I went to see uh, my chairman. I talked to him, and he said, "Well, you know, we want we want a quarter of a million pound for it if you're going to go. We want a quarter of a million and." Um, Doug and Steve and the board were going to meet me on the Wednesday morning um, to, to obviously finalise everything. But I had to get clearance from Wickham first. But that, Matt, was the only night in my life, and I can say this without any fear of reprisals, I never slept for one second. You know those nights when you go to bed and you say, oh, I can't sleep. I could not sleep for one second that night. Um I was laying there thinking the enormity of it. You know, this is Aston Villa. Um, you know, they're, they're probably going to triple my salary. You know, I was earning a thousand pound a week at Wickham as a manager, and um, I, you know, I was thinking, crikey, they, they, they're probably going to triple my salary. And oh my god, you know, it's like mate, and who, who they're playing Saturday? And I, I kind of quickly got in touch with somebody to find out who Villa were playing, and it's Liverpool. Like, what Liverpool at home? <laughs> I think we were playing Wrexham at home or something, you know, and, and Wickham. And and suddenly this is this whole thing that's thrust upon me and I never slept that night. And the following morning I obviously got up and, and I had a meeting with, with uh, my chairman in, in Wickham. About nine o'clock I think I went over to his office and uh, we had a chat and he said, you know, I want a quarter million pounds for you and this, that and the other. And I went off up to Birmingham to meet with the, with the chairman and Steve. And uh, we went to New Hall Hotel. And we sat and anyway, we, we thrashed everything out. Um, they produced a contract. I, I signed the contract, uh, agreed the compensation with Wickham. And uh, I was 
now the manager of Villa. And we had a press conference at 5.15 at Villa Park that night, that evening. And back in the day, I, I was kind of taken in as, as a surprise. You know, no, nobody knew who the manager was going to be, but there was a press conference at 5.15. And they literally hid me in one of the boxes in the north stand and they brought me out and, and I walked into the room and, and I don't think many people in that room knew that I was going to be the next manager. And when I walked in, there was a, a few gasps from the uh, journalists. Ah, John, JG, my God, we were expecting Rude Hullet. <laughs> or, or, or some, you know, superb uh, foreign coach. Um, Actually, Matt, in, in, in the mail that week, or, or that night, it might have been that night, Wednesday night. There was um, there was ten pictures on the on the front page, I think, of the potential uh, manager, next manager of Aston Villa. There was ten head and shoulders pictures, and I wasn't in any of them. Uh, I was just I came from left field, completely left field. It was no one had even thought about me, considered me, and rightly so, you know, rightly so. Um, but obviously I walked in and there was a few gasps of, of surprise and, um, and and then it just took off from there and, and we spent we spent about two or three hours that evening just talking, interview, 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 interview and I actually stayed at Doug's house that night I had nowhere to stay he said to me about seven o'clock where are you staying tonight? I said I don't know he said I'll stay at my house so I stayed at Doug's that night I always remember in his kitchen he had the sandwiches from the press conference, we're in his kitchen. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, weren't they, weren't they from the, they were in, they were in the press, them sandwiches, because I remember, I could see the silver salver and the sandwiches, I recognised them from the, he said, well, he said, it was a bit of a waste to throw them away, so I thought I might as well bring them home. So I, I was learning, I was learning stuff from him every day, you know, and, and I didn't know Doug. Seriously, I didn't know Doug, even though I'd worked for him a couple of times. I only knew him as, as Mr. Ellis or, or, or Chairman. Uh, and it was just, you know, I'd see him in the corridor and I'd just say, hello, Mr. Chairman, how are you? And that was it. So I didn't know him. I didn't know what he was like. He was called Deadly, as you know. And I just presumed that he was an absolute monster to work for. <laughs> I did. I, I really did. Because of his, his nickname... And the, the persona that people gave him was that he was this real tough, high-flying... He was like an Alan Sugar type of guy, you know, <laughs> who didn't take any crap from anybody. Um, and obviously, as I met him and I got to know him, I mean, he, he was obviously the opposite. He was, he was a pussycat, really. But, um, you know, listen, mate, we had, our, we had our fallout from time to time, but he was still a, a really good guy to work for. But, yeah, that was the start of it. So, And then on the Saturday, we were playing Liverpool, and... and I remember standing in the tunnel at Villa Park, the old tunnel, uh, when we had the old Trinity Road stand. And I remember standing in the tunnel and waiting to go out. And there was 37,372 there. It was full house, sold every ticket. Liverpool. I've got that long walk up the side, up the touchline to my seat. And I'm thinking, I wonder what the reaction is going to be from the punters, you know. These are Villa fans who I've got to walk past. And I, I kind of was expecting a few jeers, a few whistles maybe, a few, what the bloody hell are you doing, Gregory? <laughs> when you walk along that side, you can pick up all the conversation. And to be honest, mate, 
I come out of there and I literally got applauded all the way to my seat. I was actually very overcome by it. And I think about it today. And, and it was, they were saying to me, you're the manager of our club, Aston Villa. I'm a Villa fan. You've got my 100% support. Uh, and that's the feeling that I got when I walked those 40 or 50 yards up to my seat. Um, it was an amazing reaction that, that I received from the fans. I wasn't expecting it, um, but it was, um, it was very welcome at that particular time. And then, of course, we went 1-0 down after five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, Brian, where are you? <laughs> Brian, you can have this job back. It's not that good, you know. It's not as good as I thought it was. No, we went 1-0 down after five minutes. And I saw Michael Owen for the very first time. So I hadn't seen him. Um, I'd been away for 16 months. And in that time, he was now 18. He just got into the first thing. My God, he was quick, unbelievably quick and talented. And oh, and, um, and he won the penalty for them after five minutes and they scored, went one nil up. And I just thought, oh my God, this could be a long, long afternoon for me. But as you know, Stanley Victor come up with a couple of goals and I got off to a good start. Yeah, I mean, I was on the whole end that day. So I think if there was any cynicism, then it wasn't shown by any of that crowd. And by the time mm. the 90 minutes, by the time the 90 minutes was up, you got us convinced anyway, to be honest. Yeah, it was, you know, listen, it was a uh, thing, you know, sometimes things happen. You've seen it with, with so many, many clubs, so many clubs, the coach, the head coach leaves, the, the manager leaves, somebody else comes in and they win the next game and they win a couple of games and suddenly things change. Maybe, you know, and he hasn't really changed anything. You know, I, I, I went in and I just didn't really change anything. I just thought, well, let's. I, I played an attacking team in that first game and things just worked out for you, you know, and each game we went into, we, we, we tried to win it because we had to win it because we were skirting a little bit with, with the relegation zone. Um, and, and we were just sort of pretty positive in all of it um, in, in those in those first few games that we started. And uh, and as I said, you know, there was nothing incredibly different that I, that I did. I suppose I just brought back everybody uh, with a smile on their face and uh, tried to encourage a little bit of camaraderie amongst them. Um, and that more more than anything. And and you know, always picking the right team sometimes. Uh, and and. I, I always had the sort of an excuse of well it's not it's not my team it's not my players these are Brian's players um, so I've got to play whatever because I can't bring in my own team you know it was it was coming up to transfer deadline day um, I did have a chance to bring in a couple but I didn't need to because everything was working very well for me um, Sabo was still Sabo um, he, he scored a few goals for me during that initial couple of months. Uh, Stan was was Stan, and I still had a few problems dealing with those kind of things. But everybody else in the squad was working exceptionally well, and um, as I said, I, I inherited a, a very good squad from Brian, so it, it wasn't difficult to get them playing again. So, in terms of of Stan, because you said he was the only new yeah. member of the squad, if you like, I know you've gone on the record about this yeah. previously, kind of saying you might have handled it a bit differently. Mm. In that moment. What was it like? Because clearly you got a reaction out of him from from day one. Was it just was he like no other character you dealt with before, or what was the dynamic like with you and you and you and him? On the, on the Thursday, my tra- my first training session was Thursday afternoon. I did a I did a, um, the press conference on the Wednesday. I was appointed on Wednesday tea time, and Thursday morning I had to go and say. 
goodbye to the Wickham boys. So we put training back to the afternoon. I came in Thursday afternoon. As I said, I walked down the t- walked down the corridor, told everyone not to be late. We went out on the training ground. Went th- we did the warm-up and everything else. We are all organised. Everything was organised. Everything was sorted. And I wanted to do a little bit of finishing because footballers love finishing. They love shoot- shooting sessions. So I put on a shooting session at the end. And, and somebody crossed the ball into the box and it was Stan and, and Yorkie, I think, went into the box as a twosome to finish. And Stan headed, headed this ball and scored with a header. And one of the coaches come up to me and whispered in my ear. He said, you've cracked it with Stan. That's the first time he's headed the ball in over, in over three months. And I looked at him and he was serious. Um, and I thought, really? And he said, yeah. He said, really? He said, yeah, and the ball for three months. He said, you've cracked it. He, lo- he loves you. Anyway, he scored two on the Saturday, and uh, he had a, a run-in with a guy called Steve Harkness during the game. And I think Harkness had, had, had said some abusive things towards Stan. Um, and I took Stan off with 10 minutes to go in that game, and uh, he was in the bath after the game, and I went in to see him, and he was the most miserable man in the world. He just scored two goals against Liverpool, his old club. He was the absolute hero. Uh, he was my hero. If he wasn't uh, Liverpool's hero, he was certainly my hero. And the fans had, had given him a standing ovation when he came off uh, in the 80th minute. And he was he was still chomping. He was moaning about something. It something to do with Harkness. Something had gone on there. And I'd said to him, look, you won. You scored both goals against your old club. You're the hero. Everyone loves you. And, and I couldn't seem to get through to him. He was still not, not very happy. I couldn't get a smile on his face. And I just thought, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's Stan, whatever. I'm sure he'd be okay in the morning or on Monday morning, whatever. And we played Tuesday night in Madrid in the UEFA Cup. And he started up front and, uh, he didn't move an inch. And I took him off after 55 minutes. And uh, I then started to see the other side of Stan and, and the other side of, of the problems that probably Brian had faced um, in the previous months before me going there, you know, as a, as a manager, when Brian was a manager. So it wasn't all um, perfect. Um, and, and then obviously... Things developed over the over the next few months with regards to Stan. But I mean, everyone else was fine. We, we were playing well. We were winning matches. We were scoring lots of goals, um, and everything in my in my house was 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 pretty good. You know, I was honoured to be doing what I was doing. I was still pinching myself every now and again, but um, no. So so everything else was good. The team was shaping up nice. We didn't add anything to the squad because I don't think we needed to. The transfer deadline went past and um, it didn't affect us at all. Everyone was, was really playing well. And we finished the season off in style, as you know. Atletico Madrid at Villa Park. Um, yeah. Stan turned up for that one again. And I think we, Lee Hendry keeps going on about that chance chance that he, he missed. Yeah. I think Tal scored, didn't he? Stan scored. And I think Lee, Lee Hendry had what had a chance to, to kind of win the tie and it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Was, was that a night that was that fills you with pride because of how great a night, you know, how great the atmosphere it was, or is it still one of those ones 
missed opportunities, the one that got away. It was a great night, a great night for football, great night for Aston Villa, but we didn't win. And and we obviously didn't qualify. And, and so it's it's tinged with, with failure, really. I mean, that's that's what I was saying about earlier on, about, you know, you, you can win things, you can win a cup, uh, you can play rubbish, uh, but you win a cup, you've... You, your 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 answer to anyone who wants to criticise you is there's a trophy, um, there's a victory. Look at Wikipedia. It says next to my name, it says champion. Um, we couldn't say that after that game. It was an amazing night. The, the stadium was unbelievable. Every every single person inside, inside that stadium was on their feet that night, literally for the whole game. Uh, it was end to end stuff. Stan scored an unbelievable goal, and as you say, Henders um, Molina was was the Madrid keeper um, who who went on to coach actually uh, a bit later. But he was uh, he was the Madrid keeper. He made a brilliant save from a fantastic little move. Henders just bent it into the bottom corner, and the keeper made this save. And so it finished two one. We lost on away goals, and um, yeah, so it ultimately it's a failure. And, and this was Brian's. Team, this was Brian's trophy. Brian had got us all the way to the quarterfinals, and um, and I messed it up for him. So, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, oh, I, it, it still it still sort of sits there and haunts me. Um, what could what could have been? But listen, this is this is what football does to you, you know. Um, but at least we performed. At least we performed well that night. And I think a lot of people that went away from that game. Will still remember it today as 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 a nearly as a nearly result. Um, it, it was a great night, great atmosphere. Everything about it was great, except the outcome. And and you know we're all in it to win games. That's what football's all about. Professional football is all about winning, and we didn't win. You're a key member of Brian's backroom staff. How important were the people around you, John, when you're at Villa in terms of your coaching staff? They're incredible, uh, incredibly uh, uh, important. Um, you have to make the right ones. You know, they have to be able to integrate with the players, and in much in, in the same way, me and Evo working for Brian, we, we were we're different people, and um, you know, I'm always taking the Mickey, uh, having a bit of fun, serious. When it when I need to be serious, I can you know switch on the serious head, but. You know, I, I could always be light-hearted and 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 fairly understandable of, of players' behaviour and and how players are. Um, Alan would be slightly different. Uh, Alan would obviously get more involved on the administration side of, of the job as well. And and having those people around you all the time was important. And I immediately appointed Stevie Harrison as my first team coach. Uh, I knew all about Steve. Uh, and, and most importantly, I bought him there because he was a good coach, and, and I wanted a, I wanted somebody that I could rely on on the training field. Because there's days when you don't always, you know, get the chance or or, or have the, the the feeling to want to do the coaching that day. You, you you delegate and allow other people to to come on. And 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 Steve, great personality. And he, he he was similar to me in, in many ways, in as much as you know he could enjoy it, have a joke, have a laugh, have fun, be a be a player's confidant as well. He could always be the player's confidant um, when players would go to him rather than me, because uh, they'd kind of find out how I was thinking about 
them as players and so on and so forth. And then they trust Steve and, and Steve was just great with the, with the players. So um, I retained uh, the likes of people like Tony McAndrew and, and Kevin McDonald, who were working with the academy uh, and, and the reserve sides. Um, and, and these guys are always important. You know, your physio is important. Your, your fitness coaches are important. I had Paul Barron with me as well, you know, as a goalkeeping coach. So, um, and, and I'm the sort of person that, that's more than willing to delegate the job to people. I, I don't tell the goalkeeping coach how to coach his goalkeepers because I'm not a goalkeeping coach. He is, so I, I give him, I trust them. And you have to trust them. You have to trust them that they support you all the time. So, yeah, they're very important, Matt, those kind of people to have around. You have the right people with you. One thing I've been meaning to ask you about for years is, because we speak about this a lot when the anniversary comes up, but what was that Arsenal game like for you at Villa Park? We've, obviously, we've got the parachuting Santa who's kind of collapsed into the, the roof of the, the Trinity and 2-0 down at half-time, an elongated half-time while that, that guy is getting, getting seen to, and you come roaring back. Did, did you know what was going on during the, in the dressing room? On that day, um, we knew we knew that there'd been an accident of some denomination, but we weren't too sure what it was. Um, and they said that the second half is being delayed, so we just sat in the dressing room uh, waiting to be told. It was it was the live game, of course, with Sky. It was live on TV, um, and we we found out that the the and there's been a parachute display of some sort, and and this guy had had either hit the roof or hit something uh, on his descent and um, he was he was injured. So we, we were having to wait. I'd actually taken off Julian Jochen. I'd actually substituted him and he always used to take his boots off at the end of a match. Never un- He never used to undo the laces and uh, he just used to slip off his boots and put them on the floor in front of him and he'd sit there five minutes, probably have a cup of tea or something. Um, because we used to drink tea in those days and uh, he would just sit there and I took him off and I replaced him with Stan, Stanley Victor. So Stan was coming on, we were 2-0 down and I thought, well, I'll just throw Stan, I'll try and get back in the game. Anyway, the, the half-time should have been 15 minutes, it ended up being about 25 minutes and then we got the call to, and something told me, I don't know what, I just said, um, no, i tell you what, uh, Julian, put your boots back on, you're not coming off yet. Because obviously we hadn't seen the match officials because we were still in the dressing room, and uh, I said, "No, you, you stay on, you stay on. We, we we need to we need to keep you on the pitch." And I said to Stan, "You know, stay stay warmed up. Um, you might be on in the next ten or fifteen minutes." So I left Julian on, and of course he, he scored our first goal um, that got us back into it about ten minutes after the restart. Um, but we knew nothing about it. We knew nothing about what had actually happened. We just heard there'd been a, an accident. We obviously had no idea uh, how serious it was or the extent of, the, of, of any injuries. But um, we'd find that out, obviously, later on. But uh, no, so we just literally went back out. And suddenly, Julian got us back in the game. It was in front of the whole end as well. And suddenly, we, we, we had it off. And uh, Dion scored two goals after that. He scored some goals for us, by the way. What uh, I've, I saw on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, I think it was his birthday or something, and um, they had 10 of his goals for Villa. And unbe- un- unbelievable finishes. Incredible finishes. You know, he 
balls dropping out of the sky and he's volleying them in the top corner. And uh, man, he 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 was he he, he was brilliant. Uh, I I got him, I think, just at his peak. And he scored some uh, incredible goals for Aston Villa, I have to say. But obviously, he scored the, the two in the second half that day and got us the winner. And suddenly, from being 2 0 down, we were, we'd won the match 3 2 and we went back to the top of the league. And Arsenal were champions of England. And in, in the May of that year, I think it was May, maybe May the 2nd, in the previous season, um, we beat them 1 0 at home, 1998. We beat them 1-0 at home in the very last game of the 97-98 season. We beat them 1-0 at home. Yorkie scored a penalty. And we had Hugo Ekiog sent off. And we and Arsenal were champions. They had been crowned champions the week before. And we, uh, we beat them 1-0 in the final match of the season, which pushed us up into seventh position, which we ended up qualifying for UEFA Cup. And then they came in the December, still as champions, and we beat them again. So we beat them twice in the same year at Villa Park. So that's a little stat that I'm very proud of, Matt. So I wanted to let you know that. <laughs> that was Brian's <laughs> little kind of Panenka little dink penalty, wasn't it, over Seaman? It was, yes. I think, I'm not too sure if the ball even touched the net. <laughs> <laughs> he dinked it over Seaman, and I can remember Seaman laying down on the floor and sort of watching this ball go past him. And obviously not being able to do anything about it. Um, but that was typical Yorkie, wasn't it? Typical Yorkie. You must have, before you got me on the subject of York, you must have been kind of tearing your hair out, I suppose, when he's doing things like that in, in, in big matches. But I used to, from from the whole end, I used to, it was, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, worth the admission alone, but just watching him warm up and bounce the ball on his head from the, the whole end all the way along the pitch back to the tunnel. Just little little moments like that just kind of made me kind of fall in love with Aston Villa, I think. As first thing coach with Brian, I'd always join in the warm-up anyway because that was part of my job. Um, but then when I came back as a manager, I went back into the warm-up like I did 16 months before when I left, uh, before I left. Um, I went back in the warm-up. So as the manager of the team, I still used to put my tracksuit on and go out and, and join in the warm-up. I always made a point of spending, you know, a couple of minutes with Yorkie, just firing balls into him. I mean, his touch was brilliant. He was uh, had a great first touch on the ball, and he just had great feet, and uh, you know, uh, an, an incredibly talented individual. And and again, I think we got him, or we had him uh, in in certainly ninety uh, ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight. We had him in a really good uh, period. He, he was beginning to peak. And really show that um, the full potential that he would later sort of show at uh, at Old Trafford when he, he obviously won the double there, uh, the treble rather in his first season. So um, yeah, uh, again, outstanding player. And the, these were the people that obviously, as a coach, you you want to work with these people because they they're like the best at what they do. And, and certainly, Yorkie was one of those. I don't know if it was you, but it was definitely Paul Barron. And the goalkeepers used to have competition to see if they could boot the ball into the top of the top of the hole. Oh, yes, yes, did yes. You, did you ever get involved in that? No, no, no. Because <laughs> I, I would have, I would have cleared the stand. No, I, I, no, I, I remember them doing that. Yeah, a bit of fun, mate. And then, then it becomes, then it becomes a superstition. You know, with, with all footballers, it becomes suddenly you do that before the game, and obviously you win, so you have to do it the next game. <laughs> and, and then you're obsessed with this thing, you know, and. We we had a boy called, I think he was 
Chris, I think it was Chris Bowden. He, uh, he was predominantly a reserve team player, but he used to, his kit when he when he took his tracksuit off uh, the villa for the reserves. He'd take off his tracksuit and he'd hang it up on the on the coat peg, and the, the trousers had to be perfect tracksuit trousers, and then the jacket, and then his shoes and a sock in each shoe, and they had to be alongside each other. Everything was perfect. And it was just purely superstition. It was in his head. If he didn't put them like that, he was going to play terrible. Um, so his superstition was his kit had to be. And of course, everybody that walked past walked past his clothes would kick his shoes. So suddenly, <laughs> yeah, or just take you know, throw his underpants in the dustbin or something. You know, that's and, what and probably it, cost him his villa career. He used to he used to get angry. He used to get so angry about it because you were messing with his clothes which in turn was messing with his superstition and uh, but yeah I, I remember Paul doing that with with the goalkeepers and then he started he started to warm up the goalkeepers in the tunnel so Bozzy at half time would have a team talk and then Bozzy would go out into the corridor and Paul would fire a few footballs at him <laughs> in the corridor but then you ha- he had to do that every week because suddenly it became a superstition so Footballers are terrible with that. Just on Dwight, on, on Dwight, John, I think you spoke to my colleague Ash Priest a couple of weeks ago about um, yeah. how you how you look at Dwight's departure now through the prism of what, however many years yeah. on we are now, over 20 years, mm. 20 years on. Mm. None of us really wanted him to go at that time, but I suppose he could argue that he was vindicated in the first year by, by winning the treble at United. Um, yeah. was, it, was it the Everton performance when he, he didn't show up that kind of convinced convince you it was, it was okay to move him on or was it the money or what was the thing that flicked the switch that said okay I'm not going to fight it anymore well I mean obviously it's, it's fairly well documented um, what actually flipped me in the end but um, just to start with um, I'd, I'd obviously come back to the club in, in February and um, he was in my team he was like first pick and uh, he was, he'd been my first choice and I had Sabo Julian Jurchin, Yorkie, and Stanley Victor. I had four strikers, um, and I, I occasionally played three. I occasionally played three of them, but I had four to try and satisfy. And, and obviously, Julian was the junior out of the four of them. But um, Yorkie was uh, w- was by far my, my first choice. It was somebody with Yorkie. Yorkie would always play, and then I'll put somebody else with him. Uh, and, and Yorkie was just—he was just such in, in such an amazing form in, in everything he did. He was brilliant in everything training. He was brilliant. I mean, he worked hard as well off the ball. He worked ever so hard, and, and um, he chased back people. And in my first game at um, uh, against Liverpool, um, he, he created the, the first equaliser. And um, he finished off the season. In, we played Everton away. We won 4-0, 4-1 at Goodison Park. I think he scored two that day. And he was breathtaking. Um, he, he was just brilliant. And, and literally, I built my team around him, and um, which, which I later did with Paul Merson, you know. But, but Yorkie, at that particular time, I, I, I built the team around him. He would play, and then 10 others would play with him. Um, and he was such a vital cog in my team. And, and we finished the season, as you know, in seventh position. A uh, huge part was down to him. And we, we, I was then getting pestered by Sir Alex about him. Mark Bosnitz had signed for Manchester United. So 
He was in, him and Yorkie were big mates. He was in Yorkie's ear all the time, trying to get him to go to, to Old Trafford. And all that summer, I, I resisted calls from, from uh, Sir Alex. And they started sending offers for him by fax machine. Uh, when we obviously used fax machines in those days, we started getting offers. We got an offer at eight million, and I think Doug would have sold him there and then that day. <laughs> eight million pounds, John. <laughs> quick, sell him, sell him quick. Um, so, I, and I thought, no, you can't sell me. This is my best player, and my whole team is built around this guy. He's he's going to get us in the top four next season. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. We can't let him go. Um, anyway, as as it. As it went on, we came back pre-season. He was a bit moody and I could tell that, you know, I was still getting the calls from Sir Alex and and all that. And it just went on and on and on. And um, we played Everton away in our first game. Bozzy saved the penalty. We were fantastic. Walter Smith had just been appointed. It was his first match. They had uh, the Scots Dragoon Guards were, were on the pitch doing a marching, you know, with the orchestra and the bagpipes and everything. Man, the roof came off when, when the teams came out and, and we did brilliant on the day. But Yorkie, we played with 10 men because Yorkie didn't try a leg and he didn't chase back once. He failed to control the ball. He, he just kept saying to me, you know, he sulked basically for 90 minutes. Uh, in the dressing room, he couldn't even be bothered to speak to anybody. You know, he was just just totally miserable the whole time. I can remember it so well. Um, he basically said, I don't want to play for you lot anymore. And, and in fact, that's what he told me on the Monday. Uh, he came into my office and, and he said that, that sentence, I don't want to play for Aston Villa anymore. And I was insulted. I, I, I took it really personally. Um, you know, we I considered us to be a big club, one of the biggest clubs in the country. And he was saying that he didn't want to play for us. And I was incredibly hurt by it. Uh, and, and I was very angry about it. And and um, I then, we we now got calls. They'd offered 10 million for, for Yorkie. And then a few days later, they offered us uh, 12.6 million. And, and the story goes, I, I went to, and, and obviously all, all this kind of, all these conversations were beginning to appear in the local media. And the local media have, had seen how Yorkie played on the Saturday. And all the fans that went to the game had seen Yorkie not play uh, his normal game for us on the Saturday at Everton. And obviously word come back that Yorkie was a disgrace and that he didn't try a leg and et cetera, et cetera. And I went out with a friend of mine on, on, the, on the Monday, I think it was, Monday evening. We went off to um, TGI Fridays in Sutton Caulfield. And I sat at the table and a call come through from Sir Alex. Guy on the next table, there was two guys on the next table who heard the conversation I was having with Sir Alex. So I went outside, come back in, and one of the guys said to me, it's not bad news, is it? So I said... What would be bad news? He said, if Yorkie stayed, which I was a little bit shocked by. But then I thought, and he went, he said, if Yorkie, if Yorkie stayed. And I said, is that how you feel? He said, yeah. He said, get rid of him, John. He said, he, he's, he's not, a, and he was rubbish on Saturday and this, that and the other. It's time he went. And it kind of, I kind of felt was, you know, if that's what the Villa fans think, then maybe this is the right time. And, um, you know, within 24 hours he'd gone. 
and uh, we got 12.6 million. And I had a uh, shareholders meeting in the whole suite on the night we sold him. And there should have been there should have been uh, 800 people, I think, in there were allowed in there. That was maximum 800. I think we had about 1400 in there. <laughs> and uh, they wanted to know about Yorkie. And I, I remember standing up and saying, Doug didn't sell him. I sold him. It's my fault. You can blame me because he didn't want to play for Aston Villa anymore. And he told me to my face that he didn't want to play for our club anymore. And that's the reason we sold him. And we, we got the 12.6 million, which I think was a, a very good price for him. And, um, and so we had to find life without him, uh, which I knew was going to be incredibly difficult. Uh, Matt. And, and all the way through, I didn't want him gone because he, he was our best player by a long way. And, and he, he was the one that could get us, you know, into Europe. He's the one that could get us into cup finals because of his ability. And I didn't want him to go. I didn't want him to leave us. And, and unfortunately, you know, in the end, he went. And we missed him. And we did miss him uh, until, until we managed to get Merson in the building. Um, which helped us to overcome the loss of Yorkie. Away from the kind of um, the upset of, of, of Dwight going then, you've mentioned Merson, you've mentioned Dublin. I could probably go through a list. Well, I've probably got a list of players here who you've bought in. Delaney, Juan Pablo, Melberg, you know, Carboni, so on. There's some kind of, there's some players, and maybe I'm biased because it was my, you know, I was back in, back in your, your era, John, I was kind of, <laughs> I don't know, 19, 20 years old. So I'm autom- automatically going to have an, an affinity with those days. But of all those, what do you think was your best kind of pound-for-pound pound signing, whether it's somebody who was a bargain or somebody who Melberg. had a mentality? Melberg. Mel- Melberg. It, he was, you're saying like pound-for-pound, um, and if we talk, I mean, he cost us five million quid. I, I, I chased him all over Europe. I've, I followed him to quite a few different countries. <laughs> and uh, he, he was playing for uh, Racing Santander in La Liga in Spain. And I went to, uh, which I often used to do, you know, I'd, I'd um, fly out. The good thing about teams, that, uh, countries where they play football on a Sunday was um, the fact that you could go to Madrid to see La Liga games on a Sunday. So we'd play Saturday. Saturday night, I'd get a flight to Madrid and Sunday I'd go and see a game and um, it was great scouting for me and I saw I, I went to see Madrid playing Santander with no, with nobody in mind really and I suddenly saw this guy he played right back that night for Santander and he was quick as quick and I looked at him and I, I did a bit of research on him I found out that he normally plays as a central defender and I thought well if he's a central defender and he's quick it would be, I, I, I sort of think of Des Walker, what career Des Walker had. Des wasn't the greatest footballer in the world, but he was unbelievably quick, uh, which got him out of trouble so many times. And um, I just thought of Melberg, stick him in the centre of our defence. Um, and uh, he then played for the national team um, and I went to watch him play. And I started going to his, finding out which hotel he was staying at. And I, I'd go in the hotel and uh, and and walk, sort of hang around the reception, wait for him to sort of walk through, then grab him um, and put him up against the wall and tell him that he's going to sign for Villa next week. But uh, I, but I did. I, I got a relationship with him and 
I started, I said, I started following him, and I went back to Spain, saw him play again in, in Santander, and and I just thought this guy is going to be fantastic for us. Uh, very Swedish, um, and I remember him coming to sign uh, the contract, and um, we agreed the fee, obviously five million. He sat in Doug's office, and I sat there with he, he was with his agent, and he asked, he told Doug what he wanted, and Doug went, no, 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 and he's he tried to offer him something else. And f after about an hour, I went out of the room. I said, and this, you ain't going to change this guy. And I said to Doug, just pay him what he wants. You ain't gonna... And it wasn't, it wasn't, he, he wouldn't be the biggest earner in the club. Just pay him what he wants. And Doug wouldn't give in. Anyway, about four hours later, he, Doug agreed to everything that Melberg had asked for four hours ago. Um, and, and he signed. And uh, his first morning's training was a game of cricket on the plastic pitch at, at Bodymore. And uh, he'd never seen the game of cricket ever in his life. And we used to occasionally have a game of cricket instead of training. And uh, I can remember that very clearly. But, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the players that you mentioned there, Carboni was, was amazing. Merson, Merson was incredible. He, he, he was an incredible player for us. Uh, and and he, he often got us out of trouble. Um with with his brilliance, you know, he, he he never used his left foot, as you know, but his right foot was just a wand. He he was amazing. More often than not, he would be our best player um, each and every week. And yeah, he was in and out my office, which is quite well documented. But um, uh, he was always a good trainer, uh, and and as I said on, on match days, he was he was just brilliant. He just just there was something inside of him. That, a quarter to three, he just used to be out, switch on a switch somewhere inside him, and he'd go out, and he would just be, uh, just be incredible. I always remember the Coventry goal, of course, in the last minute um, when we were two 0 down, and we come back one three two, and he scored an unbelievable goal. But only Merson can do that. You remember his goal at Everton when he lobbed the goalkeeper from forty yards? I, I just, la I actually laughed. I was in the stand at the time. And I, and I just, I literally laughed because I, I'd see that kind of thing off him every day. That was the kind of thing that Paul would do every day. He was just such a talent. Um, but yeah, he made, named a lot of players there. Uh, Juan Pablo was, again, was, was, was an amazing, amazing player, an amazing person. Um, and we had lots of good players. Stevie Watson, Stevie Stone, um, Dion was, was, was brilliant. Georgie Botang came in and I didn't spend that long with him, I have to say, but... Um, yeah, we were. I wanted us to be the best club in the country. I wanted us to be. When 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 they talk, when people talked about winning the championship, I wanted them to mention our name. And they'd say, well, you know, match of the day. Well, you know, it's out of Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea, or Arsenal. Uh, and we were sat top of the league, and they wouldn't even mention us. And, and that used to gall me. You know, I used to get really peed off with that that they're not even mentioned us. And uh, I kind of thought, you know, two or three years down the line, I wanted us to be mentioned in the same breath as, as, as the big four, as they were at the time. I wanted us to get... Uh, Champions League places had just opened up in the Premier League. They were now going to allow four teams from the Premier League to, uh, to go into the Champions League. And I wanted us to be in that four. Um, I just wanted us to be the big club that I knew that we could be, that we were in, in 81 and 82. And I wanted us to be the same again. And um, 
I was very passionate about that, I have to say. And I, it used to gall me when when we, we didn't get mentioned, um, you know, about being uh, potential cup winners or cup favourites. We, we never got a mention. It was always, it was always, as I said, Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, Liverpool and Man United. Um, and I wanted us to be mentioned in the same breath as those people. Why do you think, without wishing to wishing to open old wounds, John? Why do you think it it did kind of tail away then? Because obviously it was the ninety eight, was it? Villa were top yeah. at Christmas, or and yes. then it just like, kind like, of 90, yes. We went top in two thousand and one. We started off very well in 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 two thousand one two thousand two season. We started off very well indeed, and uh, we beat. Bolton Wanderers at home and went top of the league at the end of October and uh, that was when I the famous story of me trying to sign Muzzy is it I wanted us to sign Muzzy uh, and Doug said no to me and it was the first time he'd ever sort of said no uh, blatantly said no to to, uh, to me um, improving the screen he actually said why do we need him John we're top of the league <laughs> That, that, that was his financial logic, <laughs> uh, and you know, obviously, and and I, I just I lost a bit of my um, my 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 desire. I say my desire. I lost a little bit of my desire, in as much as um, it, it all always seemed about money. It always it always everything that we tried to do was about money. Now. I'm not saying it was it was the wrong way to be. Doug didn't ever want us to become a, a Leeds United, who, of course, at that particular time in, in uh, 2001, were were really struggling financially. They had huge loans that they'd borrowed to buy players with, and the players weren't weren't playing particularly well. They borrowed huge amounts of money at big interest rates, and they were heading towards bankruptcy and, and Doug didn't want us to become another legionite. He would often say that to me and, and I understood that and appreciated that. And, and sometimes I'd get in my car, Matt, and I'd drive up and down the country, scouring, scouting, looking for players, looking how we could, you know, maybe nick somebody from somewhere for, as I did with Delaney. Delaney cost us 250 grand. Uh, and I started looking at bargains like that and, and, I was, you know, I was becoming a little bit more uh, fed up with with a kind of a, a lack of support, I think, from the boardroom with regard to improving the squad. Um, and I got a little bit delusioned with with Doug. It, you know, I, I kind of felt Doug was quite happy to finish 15th in the league, but make £5 million profit that season. Um, you know, I wanted us to finish in the top four, even if it meant losing a few quid. And that wasn't the way that, that the chairman wanted to run the football club. And I think that, more than anything, started to get to me and it started to eat away at me that, um, uh, that, that, that the club didn't really want to um, throw any more money at trying to win something or trying to qualify for Champions League. And, and I lost a couple of players through injury um, and I, I, I lost a few games at home. And I slowly started, we, we slipped down the table, having been top in, in October, I think by, by January, we'd, we'd start to slip out of the top six even, you know, which hadn't really happened since I'd been there. Um, and things just, you know, it, I kept looking back to the Muzzy Is It incident and um, thinking, well, you know, it, 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 
we should have bought him at the time to improve the squad, to have made the competition better um, for everybody. It would have it would have given us a great boost at that particular time. And and I think in the end, I I, I slowly was drifting further and further from from the chairman, and um, it was starting to affect me on a, on a daily basis of, of not being involved um, with the top four. Playing second fiddle, you know, to to the top four, and and I kind of I blamed the the, the chairman at, at that particular time. I, I felt that he wasn't giving me the support that probably I deserved. But as you know, we'd had a few run-ins over the years, and I think uh, he always gets his own back, as you know. <laughs> you know, with, with Ron, with Ron, Ron Atkinson, he, he used to have a few run-ins with Big Ron, and and in the end, you know, he he fired Ron. You know that day would come. One season, Ron finishes second in in a Premiership, um, and then a little while later, they 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 were languishing in in the near the bottom of, of the Premier League, and and Doug got his own back really for some of the things that maybe Ron had called him over the years, you know. And I think that was very much happening to me as well. Uh, me and him started to drift further and further apart. Um, and we were both to blame, possibly. So, so yeah. So I got up and went. So I was chatting to um, chatting to Brian recently, and he, he was saying, kind of, it's almost as if managers of that time, really successful managers, uh, had got a shelf life. You know, you, you get to three or four yeah. years with Doug, and if he hasn't sacked you, you're worn down by him anyway. There was local journalists from from the Mail, from uh, the Express and Star. Uh, from from some of the dailies, um, who at the end of every season, I used to take in three or four bottles of champagne into the press room, some sandwiches, uh, bef- before they used to do food and that in, in those sort of places. And I would take in three or four bottles of champagne after the last home game, thank everybody for supporting us that season, thanking them all in, in, in my own little way of, of uh, having a drink with them. Um, many of those journalists were working in their newspapers when I was a player back in the late 70s. I knew, I'd known them for more than 20 years and they were now starting to write bad things about me in the local media, which I found unbelievably insulting Um to, to, to question me, uh, to question how long Doug was going to put up with me. Um, and these were guys that had, had sat on our team bus back in the day, in the 70s, we used to give the local journalists a lift back to Birmingham uh, on the team bus. He used to sit on the team bus with all the players. And when we got, when we got back to Birmingham, we'd go to the elbow room and uh, we, used to take, we used to take the journal with us. He'd come with us and have a few pints in the, in the pub on a Saturday night once we got back. These same people now were were not really supporting me very well um, with the local media and started to write bad things about me and, and basically waiting for Doug to to possibly sack me when we went through a really bad we went through a bad patch of December and um, these same journalists were starting to write these bad things about me which I found unbelievable and, and one of the journalists actually rang me. I won't tell you who he was. He actually rang me one night and he said, JG, JG, I need you quick. He said, my gaffer, the editor, 
I put in an expense form <laughs> the other day. Listen, I put in an expense form the other day um, and, and I went to San Carlos restaurant in Birmingham with you last Thursday night and we did a story about Stanley Victor Collymore. Uh, and if you get asked, you were with me last Thursday night and obviously he'd put in a, a, a fake um, expense bill. And these, these, these were the guys that then on the Saturday, if we lost at home, they were slagging me off, you know. And um, so things had, had started to go a little bit sour, Matt. Um, and uh, I was a little bit like, and, and honestly, mate, I thought I was going to be the manager of Aston Villa for 20 years. I did. After the first couple of seasons, you know, things were going very well. I just thought I, I want to be the manager for the next 20 years. And I looked at myself as, as possibly trying to do an Alex or, or, or an Arsene Wenger. Um, and, and I really thought I, I, I could be here forever because I was the happiest man in the world, you know, doing what I was doing. Uh, and I never thought it was ever going to end. I really didn't. But, um, yeah, so things went a little bit sour and a little bit difficult for me. And, um, you know, it was... I, I, I went down to Charlton. We played Charlton away on Monday night Monday night football, live on Sky. And I just wanted to win that night. I just wanted to win. I wanted to finish with a win. And that was going to be my last game. And Juan Pablo scored. We won 1-0 at Charlton. And we were seventh in the Premier League. And uh, I went to see the chairman and Stevie. And, uh, and, I, and I left a couple of days later. And, and that was it. The love affair was over, mate. And um, it was all, all downhill after that, mate. <laughs> I, can't, um, I can't be holier than that, though, about the conduct of my fellow, fellow journalists because I've, I've, ch- I've chased a few managers out of Villa Park myself, albeit lesser ones, lesser ones than you. I, I will let you go eventually, John, but I wanted to touch on, he must have been a journalist's dream. To be honest, back then, because you, you know, sometimes, sometimes as a, as a reporter, you have to prod a manager to try and get him to say something interesting. Whereas you were kind of sound bites, left, right, and centre. Do you have a favourite one, or do you remember them as well as we do? Yeah, I think uh, when, when I used to sit and watch match of the day and um, match of the day, really, match, there wasn't much else on um, football wise. You know, I think start uh, Sky, Sky Sports News had started. Sports News had started. Um, and uh, you'd see uh, in the Premier League. You'd see in the Premier League somebody had just um, uh, had just let a goal in. Uh, the goalkeeper had, had dropped it or something, or given it to the strikers. Tr- striker scores, and they get beat one nil. And then the manager came on, and they'd say, "Well, what do you think then about that uh, that mistake by your goalkeeper?" You know, and they say, "Well, well, you know, these kind of things happen." And um, I'm sure he'll be disappointed. And I should think, disappointed? I want to punch whatever. I want to knock him out, you know, if he was my goalkeeper. And I just used to see them coming on. And I just think, you know, why don't you just be a little bit more honest, be a little bit more open. And I think that once I, and I kind of promised myself that, that, that if ever I was put in that situation, I'd try and be a little bit more open. And, and, and a little bit more upfront about, you know, how I'm actually feeling. You know, um, I've just lost three on the trot. Oh, how are you feeling? You know, um, and, and so I, I wanted to. I just wanted to be a little bit more forthright, a little bit more open. 
a little bit more honest, um, to be fair. And um, uh, once or twice, I, I probably did overstep the mark with some of the comments that I did make at the time. But I, I, I wanted to try and put it in perspective that, yes, I am bitterly upset and bitterly disappointed that we've just lost the game. And you don't need to constantly keep reminding me that we haven't won for three games. You know, I know that kind of thing. So, so yeah, I did used to be a little bit outspoken, I suppose, at the time. And, and you know, I felt with, with the journos, that's where I always felt I had a, a pretty good relationship because people would ring me up on a late Thursday afternoon, uh, be under pressure from their editor that they need to write a story on Aston Villa and they've got nothing whatsoever to talk about. Uh, and... So I would just tell them, oh, you know, by the way, today we went canoeing. Um, I'd I'd tell them something that they obviously wouldn't know about. And and I I used to help the journalists as much as possible because we're all in that vicious circle that, you know, we're all working hard and we're all trying to to do the job as best as we could. And and sometimes you guys uh, don't have anything to write about. So I'd give them a little story. But, you know, it was it tended to be true. Um, but yeah, then, and then sometimes, uh, I, there was a guy called Joe Lovejoy, you know him? Yeah, yeah, was he on the Times, I think? Yes, he was at the Times at, when I was there, and he'd come to my office one day and, um, chatted, and, and, um, he wanted some Doug stories, and I told him a few Doug stories, and, and then I'd tell him, uh, I'd tell him a story that, um, was off the record, and then the following Sunday, he published the whole conversation, in his uh, in his column, he, he he wrote the whole conversation that I'd had, where I criticised the chairman and, and basically made fun of the chairman. He'd recorded everything and uh, he printed it on the on the Sunday, to which I got um, I had to then report to the board and go and sit in front of the board and, and try and justify the uh, the article. Uh, and you know, I did it in in. In good taste with Joe, I thought it, this, it was going to, you know, all stay in the room as such. He, he would print some of it, but not the pieces that he put in there. Um, and I got let down terribly with that particular incident. And so um, so it made me a little bit more careful of how I spoke with people um, as, as time moved on. But, yeah, you know, it, it was hard sometimes because people just wanted... Um, they wanted a little inside stories about the chairman, what it was like working for him and that kind of stuff. And as I said, Joe, Joe really let me down at that particular time. Here's some of my favourites, John. Go on. If I had a gun, I would have shot him. Yes, we know that, that that's Dwight. The chairman of Brighton wouldn't recognise him if he was stood on Brighton Beach in a team strip with a seagull on his head and a ball in his hand. And a ball under his arm, yeah. That was Gareth. I mean, it, it was 100% correct because... Gareth Barry came to us with Michael Standing, two boys from Brighton Youth uh, Department. And uh, Gareth Barry had been substitute once for their youth team. He hadn't played for their youth team. He was 16 years old and, and he'd been subbed for their youth team. Uh, and after he came to us and like, obviously on his 17th birthday, he signed professional contract. And we still hadn't settled up with with Brighton for his um for his compensation the compensation we had to pay Brighton comp- compensation and i think we offered 50,000 pounds for the two of them which was a lot of money at the time considering that Gareth hadn't even played um he hadn't even started a game for their youth team and um 
And within sort of six months, Gareth Berry come to us, played in and my first team at Sheffield Wednesday, made his debut, uh, started the new season in uh, August 98 at Everton. He played up against Duncan Ferguson and was, uh, was brilliant. And suddenly got recognised by uh, Glenn Hoddle, who invited him to train with the England team. And suddenly my little Gareth Barry that had just played substitute once for Brighton, um, Brighton were now saying, oh, he's the best player we've ever had. Yes, we, we had him since he was eight years old. Um, um, in fact, we signed him when he was uh, still in his mother's tummy, you know, in, uh, in uh, 1997. And uh, and we want we want two million quid, you know, and I, and that's really when because their chairman wouldn't know who Gareth Barry is. Trust me, you know. I mean, I mean, Doug Doug wouldn't really know anybody that played for our academy. Not have been sub once for the academy team, you know. And and it was just being totally honest. Uh, they'd never seen him play. I didn't think they'd ever seen him play. Um, and that that was that little outburst. Um, but yes, there was a few of them. There was once, one once about the referee's genitals. I think. <laughs> I'll tell you one that you might not remember, John, that, that abuses me. And this was apparently you did an interview. Remember Loaded magazine back in the day? Yes. A bit of a lads mag. Apparently, yes. this, is, this, is, this is what you said, apparently. What the f*** is art? A picture of a oh. bottle of sour milk lying next to a smelly jumper. What the f*** is all that about? And look at opera. To me, it's a load of sh- but people love it. I'd say football is art. When I watched France versus Holland at Euro, Euro 2000, I was orgasmic. Well, it's it's the sort of talk, Dan, that uh, um, uh, we, we would have down the pub, me and you. <laughs> I mean, it is that, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that me and you would say down the pub. We'd sit down the pub and, and talk like that. So, I mean, Lodi come on and they just said, you know, no, no holds barred. Let's just have a, a an open chat. So we did. Um, I, I can remember the actual article. I've, I've actually seen the article since, but um, yeah, I mean that's just how I felt. I mean, <laughs> I, I couldn't understand. I don't understand. You know, part of the sweaty, sweaty clothes sat on the floor, and people think it's wonderful. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, there was a few of those. To me, if you didn't have some of the kind of pantomime around the edges, I think it'd be a fairly boring existence. You know, we all love what happens on the pitch on a Saturday or Tuesday or Sunday or whatever. Yeah. But I just love the kind of characters and the personalities around around the edge of it. And it just, I don't know, and I'm not, I probably sound like I'm blowing, blowing a bit too much smoke up your arse now, John, but it's kind of having that swagger that, yeah, we're Aston Villa and... You know, we're going to entertain and we like it to be fun. And just that that kind of wearing that belief. And that's why mm. I've, and I'm on a bit of a, a kind of a, a crusade here, but that's where I've fallen out with managers in the past, where they've tried to downgrade what we're about. That, yeah. That's what you bought to Villa for me. That, that's that's the way that you kind of gave us that that swagger back. I wanted to be mentioned in the same breath as, as Man U. I wanted to be, I wanted our, our club to be talked about in the same in the same breath. When they were, they were suggesting, you know, people are going, what teams are going to be challenging for the title? You know, we never got mentioned, and and uh, and, and even with in Brian's day, when, when Brian was finishing fourth in the Premiership, like in consecutive years, and won the League Cup, you know, Villa still were not recognised as being potential Championship winners, um, and and I wanted us to be to be 
talked about in the same breath i think that's that was what drove me on and and i i kind of was on a kind of a crusade to to make us be spoke about where they can't ignore us i think that was that was that was really me you can't ignore what we're doing what we're trying to say to people uh this is us this is villa um when you come to, we're not scared of anybody you know when you come to villa park mate you're going to go on with your with your ass kicked um, if not, we're going to do our best to, to strangle you. You know, when you come to us, uh, don't expect an easy game. And I wanted that to be transferred to my team, and I wanted that to be transferred to the public. And you know, we were we were pretty formidable during those um, those nearly four seasons. Whilst I was there, we had a we had a pretty good home record. Um, and I just wanted I wanted it every every game to be like the Atletico Madrid match. You know, I wanted that atmosphere, I wanted people out of their seats, I wanted people excited, and I wanted people to to talk about our club um in the manner in which I wanted us to be recognised. I wanted us to be recognised as one of the top five clubs in the country. And when you come to Villa Park, mate, don't expect anything because we ain't going to give you anything either. I had two visits to, to, to Anfield while I was there. We won at Anfield twice in, in two visits I had. Uh, we won 3-1 one year and, and the following year we went back and we won 1-0 at Anfield. Um, and they were standout results. You know, Liverpool were still challenging for the Premiership and we went to Anfield twice and won and, and that's what I wanted us to do. I wanted us to go to those places and not fear the opposition and, and feel like we actually deserve to be mentioned alongside them, you know, and I think that what drove me on particularly. Just a, a couple of bits. This is, this is a ridiculous thing that kind of brightened up my life on, on Twitter. Do you remember when I tweeted that picture of the towel uh, as a yes. backdrop to Alan, I think it was Alan Thompson's press conference on Valley. Yeah. So just, just for context for people who don't know, I think a, a couple of years ago, I found this picture of a press conference backdrop and rather than having these printed kind of, you know, fancy backdrops that they've got now. You've got like a beach towel that was hanging yeah. hanging up behind you. And I think you came back to me and you've, you've still got that towel. Is that right? Yep. Still got it. The photograph that, that I was holding the towel was actually in Cannes, in the south of France. And the photograph is probably only about four years old. So um, about four years ago, uh, I was in Cannes and... Uh, I took that photograph of me holding the Aston Villa towel. I was just about to put it on a on a sunbed in the in the hotel I was I was staying at. So yeah, I still got it. I've I've still got Stanley Victor's shirt from his from my debut as the manager against Liverpool. I've got his framed shirt still from that game um, in a in a frame with uh, his picture in the frame and it's been autographed by Stan. So that's from his very, from my very first match as Villa manager. I've still got that. I've got Juan Pablo's shirt from um, his first goal against Coventry. Uh, he signed in January. He didn't score until April. <laughs> um, but I've still got that shirt in a frame. Uh, number eight. He was actually number eight that day, and that was his first goal that he scored for for Villa. Uh, I've still got David James' goalkeeper's shirt from saving three penalties in a penalty shootout in the semi final against Bolton. 
I've got Peter Schmeichel's shirt from being uh, the captain against Manchester United in an FA Cup match at Villa Park. I've still got his goalkeeper sweater from that and, and various other bits and pieces, mate, from, from my Villa days. I've still got all the programmes from me as a manager, all in binders and so on and so forth. So, mate, I've got a bit of memorabilia um, from uh, from some of the best days of my life. You're sitting on a bit of a nest egg there, John. I don't think you, you don't need to flog, flog yogurt to the neighbours anymore, do you, if you've got all, got all that tucked away? <laughs> You know, I, I can look at them and they, they just mean something to me. And, and, you know, they're nice little sort of mementos that I've kept over the years. And, yeah, I remember that day. I mean, I'm talking to you, Matt, about it now. And, you know, I can I can remember everything. I can remember about Juan Pablo scoring. And it was like, you know, the conversation after the game, everyone I saw, the first thing they said was, he scored at last. Oh, my God, he scored at last. Particularly the chairman. Um, he was happy that finally, you know, after paying... £9.5 million pounds for him, record signing. Um, he ends up scoring a goal. So, uh, yeah, lots lots of little stories with with so much of that memorabilia, mate. Oh, we'll end on a hot and a high in a minute, but I suppose I'd better ask you yeah. about the uh, the cup final because I've, I've neglected to ask about that, haven't I, in 2000? So, yeah. is that one of those ones that, that haunts you because, because we didn't win it? Yeah, I mean, in the same manner that we spoke about Madrid being... Um, an amazing night against Atletico Madrid at Villa Park. We lost. We actually lost the the tie. Uh, we won the match that night, but I mean, we actually lost the tie. Um, but, but it was such an amazing football match. The excitement, the uh, going two one up, and, and 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 obviously Lee Hendry's effort that we nearly scored, and um, and and the whole night was amazing. We got a standing ovation as we come off because the game itself had been brilliant. And, and I think, you know, the the game against Chelsea, the game was rubbish. Um, it wasn't exciting, it was boring, it was dull. Both teams were as bad as each other uh, and we lost the game. And, and so you don't come out of the game with, with any glory whatsoever. Um, in fact, you know, um, we, we were off and I obviously always remember that the Villa fans were at the tunnel end and I had to walk past the Villa fans to go down the tunnel. Um, which I knew before kickoff that that was what I was going to have to do. So make sure you've got the cup with you when you go down there, um, which of course I didn't have, and and we performed badly as well. We didn't perform at all. And uh, uh, I don't know if you remember Benny Carboni had a pair of gold boots, and uh, I took him off. I think middle of the second half. Anyway, he got the gold boots and. At the end of the game, he ran over to the Villa fans and threw him, threw the boots in, and they threw them back at him. <laughs> Is that true? Did they, they didn't really, that's did true. they? No, that's true. He had these gold boots, and I thought, I mean, when I first saw him, I thought, what are you doing with gold boots? Just wear your normal boots, like, you, you know, that, you, that got you here. But he got these gold boots. I think someone gave him a couple of grand to wear them in the final, and he threw them into the crowd, and threw them back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, you can laugh about it now, but mate, no, I've had sleepless nights. Honestly, I've had many sleepless nights about that. Just, you know, God, why didn't I just throw, you know, four up front and, and just try and get back in the game? And uh, if ever there was a game in my life that I wished I could replay, it would be that one because, um, you know, I felt I felt like I'd let down so many people. Um, with a poor performance. And, uh, and, and you know, this is what I was saying to you earlier, Matt, about, about Brian, you know, about how ultimately it comes back to, it comes back to the manager. 
um, it's his fault without any question. I can't, I can't uh, avoid it. That uh, result and that performance was my fault. Um, I wish we'd have played it. We had a team meeting on the Wednesday actually, and and Gareth, I finished the team meeting, and Gareth Southgate was so motivated. He said, "Can we go and play it now?" Because we're so pumped up, you know. I pumped him up to a crescendo, uh, ready to play, and um, uh, he said, "Can we go and play it now?" And I suppose had we gone and played it then, we'd have won. Uh, if that's any excuse, <laughs> but no, it was, it was so flat, Matt. It was so flat, and and. and we we didn't come out of the game with any credit, um, which we did, of course, against Atletico Madrid, but we didn't this particular day. We didn't come out with any credit. And to be honest, the, you know, the semi-final, we were poor in the semi-final uh, that went to penalties, but but we won, you know, and, and winning sometimes covers up um, all the deficiencies, you know, uh, which it did that day. But no, I mean... That that was what I was saying about how the manager feels. The manager, you take the responsibility for everything, and and it's haunted me ever since. It's been with me, and you know, as you are today, you know, a little bit reluctant to talk about it, to bring it up, but it's something that that will be forever there. And it's 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 on the internet, you know, <laughs> runners up. Um, Alan Hansen's famous quote: first is first, second is nowhere." And, and that's how it feels. Second is nowhere. People talk about FA Cup uh, finalists and, you know, basically they mean FA Cup losers. Um, so, no, it's it stay with me and it will be there with me till my dying day, mate, I'm afraid. Well, just to, just to go out on a high, because I've, 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 you've spent two and a half hours of your time with me and then I've depressed you by reminding you of 2000. I remember back in the day and... Martin Swain was a big kind of mentor of mine in terms of getting into the industry. So tell me about kind of when you were at the Jam House as, you know, tell us a little bit about your kind of love of Springsteen and your your time as a performer. I think Dan's got a photo of you from our archives. There you go. Yes, yes, that was uh, the Jam House. Stridey, Steve Steve Stride was a a guitarist and I had, um, back in the day, there's a guy called Gordon Smith who plays, who played for Brighton with me. And Smith must score. Have you ever seen that? That's it, the cup final, yeah. FA Cup final in 1983 against Man United. He should have scored the winner. Um, and anyway, um, I played with him at Brighton in uh, 1980. And when he joined us, he had a guitar and he could play the guitar. So I sat with him and he could play Beatles songs and all that. And I said, um, I said, would you teach me if I buy a guitar? Anyway, I bought a guitar and I started to try to play it. And I couldn't play it. I was rubbish. And um, so I, I packed in, but I still had the guitar. And I literally took it with me every house that I moved to. I took this guitar and stood it in the corner of the lounge, you know. And then after a while, it had no strings on it. And I looked at it one day and I said, I've got to learn how to play it. Anyway, I got it restrung and I knew Stridey played the guitar. So I talked to Stridey about it. And um, uh, when, I, when I went to the villa, I, I, now I could play a few tunes on it. And uh, I used to go around Steve's house and we'd play guitar he teach me a few songs and anyway i got speaking to swaney who's obviously in a group and um i'm a massive springsteen fan and um i started playing some of his songs and so on and so forth anyway i got with swaney and he was in this band and uh we got talking i wanted to play with the band and and um so so we we ended up playing a couple of gigs and then we got invited on the ian wright show um it'll be all right on the night he had a TV show and uh, he asked, he, I saw him in a hotel one day and he asked me to go on it. And I said, no, no, oh no, I'll be too embarrassed to go on it. 
Um, and then I saw him a few months later, and he, he got on his knees in the reception of a hotel, and he and he come up to me, and he prayed, and he said, "JG, please, please come on my show, please." I said, "Well, can I bring a band with me?" And he said, um, "He said, yeah, you can do anything you want, but please come, please come." So I said, "Okay, I'll come, and I'll bring bring a band." So obviously, I, I asked Swainy to come, and we went on the show, and we played played the song, and we did okay. And uh, yeah, then then we started to play a few bits. We we played at the NEC. It was about seven and a half thousand there at the NEC one night. We played some awards. There was some awards night, BRMB award night, I think, or something like music awards. Yeah. And we we played there live. And um, yeah, so we just had a we just had a good time for a few years. And um, I continued to play it. Um, and obviously, I've seen Bruce Springsteen all over the world. And, many many different countries and i would always uh between me and you matt i'd always go and see a player to coincide with bruce springsteen <laughs> playing in the same city that weekend you know what i mean so um yeah just co- purely coincidence you know that oh bruce springsteen's playing in milan this weekend oh i'm going to watch ac milan play Sunday. So, yeah it always seemed to tie in nicely and, and it's not true. What's not true is in 1999, we got offered the chance to go and play in New York in a pre-season friendly um, in the Gotham Cup with Fiorentina, Rapid Vienna and Ajax and ourselves in this pre-season tournament in New York at the Meadowlands, the Giants Stadium, basically, where the Giants play uh, American football. Yeah. And um, we got invited so I said, yeah, it'd be a great trip. We'd go to New York for like four days. I swear to God, I didn't know. Stridey, Stevie Stride calls me a couple of nights, a couple of days later and said, on the Saturday night, we're in New York. Bruce Springsteen is playing next door in the in the Meadowlands indoor arena. He's, he's there for like 14 nights or something. And he's actually playing the night that we're there. So, um, so we went, obviously. We went to the gig and um, it was a good week- weekend. And it was really was a, a, a total coincidence that Bruce happened to be there that weekend. But no, I mean, mate, I've, I've, I've been uh, a, a fan of his for many, many years. And um, there's a lot of people that that don't understand him, that uh, don't know what he's about. But um, I'm one of those fans that have been there uh, since, uh, since the old days. So, um, yeah, I'm still a big fan. And hopefully I get the chance to... Uh, to see him pretty soon when everyone gets back to normal. It's been an absolute pleasure, John. I'm going to leave you with this final, final quote from you, which kind of, it's not, it doesn't involve referees' testicles. It doesn't involve pointing <laughs> a gun at Dwight York. It's this one. I think it really, really sums up kind of why we, why we all love this football club. There's an aura about this club, a sense of history and tradition. Even the name is beautifully symmetrical with five letters in each word. So for all for all the stuff that you've been spouting off down the years, you're capable of a bit of poetry as well. I think aren't you? it's a really really nails it for me. That does. Yeah, listen, that that's how I felt about the place, and um, will always feel about the place. You know, when I look at it, and I look at it now, I mean, like cracky. You know, since uh, uh, our, our stadium always used to be so immaculate, uh, everything about it. Um, you know, if if a coat hook came off in the dressing room on on a Saturday afternoon, by by Sunday morning it had been replaced, it had been fixed. You know everything about that club, and and you look at it now, and it's just 
it's such an amazing place. You know, I hope that it will continue to to uh, to to stay as it is. You know, it doesn't need. You don't need to change any of the stands or. Um, I know there's, there's talk about maybe changing the north stand, but don't take away don't take away the beauty of the place because it's a it, it's a place of beauty as well. It's actually a beautiful old stadium, uh, and it's exceptionally well man, maintained. And um, uh, I'm I'll just be glad when uh, when obviously the fans can can go back and uh, fill up all those empty seats again and. Uh, Get the place rocking, mate. I've been there when it's been rocking, and uh, it's an awesome place to to be um, when when everything's going well. So um, hopefully that will happen very soon, Matt. Oh, listen, it's been an absolute privilege speaking to you at such at such length about all 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 of your kind of um, many many years at Aston Villa. So um, listen, you've been watching memories, which will never leave me. So um, I I shall enjoy them long into my uh, retirement, which is coming in about twenty years' time. (laughs) <laughs> well thanks thanks so much for your time you've been watching Claret and Blue with me Matt Kendrick and the, the, the legend former player former coach former manager John Gregory until next time up the Villa thank you for listening to Claret and Blue and Aston Villa podcast if you enjoyed today's episode then please do let us know we love hearing your feedback we'll be back soon with another episode but until then up the Villa up the Villa